Hachette Audio presents Chaos, Charles Manson, the CIA, and the Secret History of the 60s. Written by Tom O'Neill with Dan Pippenbring. Read by Kevin Stilwell. Prologue Vincent Bugliosi was on another tirade. Nothing could be worse than accusing a prosecutor of doing what you're implying that I did in this case, he barked at me. It's extremely, extremely defamatory. It was a sunny day in February 2006, and we were in the kitchen of his Pasadena home. The place was cozy, with floral patterns, overstuffed furniture, and, literally, a white picket fence out front, all belying the hostility erupting within its walls. Bugliosi wanted to sue me. It would be, he soon warned, a hundred million dollar libel lawsuit and one of the biggest lawsuits ever in the true crime genre. If I refused to soft-pedal my reporting on him, I'd be powerless to stop it. I think we should view ourselves as adversaries, he'd tell me later. Vince, I was on a first-name basis with him, as I guess adversaries must be, was a master orator, and this was one of his trademark perorations. Our interview that day dragged on for more than six hours, and he did most of the talking, holding forth as expertly as he had when he prosecuted the Charles Manson trial more than 35 years before. Seventy-one, and in shirt sleeves, Vince still cut an imposing figure, hectoring me over a formica table strewn with legal pads, notes, tape recorders, pens, and a stack of books, all written by him. Wiry and spry, his eyes a steely blue, he would sit down only to leap up again and point his finger in my face. Riffling through the pages of one of his yellow legal pads, he read from some remarks he'd prepared. I'm a decent guy, Tom, and I'm going to educate you a little about just how decent Vince Bugliosi is. And so he did, reciting a pre-written opening statement that lasted for 45 minutes. He insisted on beginning this way. He'd dragooned his wife Gail into serving as a witness for the proceedings, just in case I'd try to misrepresent him. Essentially, he turned his kitchen into a courtroom. And in a courtroom, he was in his element. Bugliosi had made his name with the Manson trial, captivating the nation with stories of murderous hippies, brainwashing, race wars, and lurid acid trips gone awry. Vince was sure to remind me, early and often, that he'd written three best-selling books, including Helter Skelter, his account of the Manson murders, and their aftermath which became the most popular true crime book ever. If he seemed a little keyed up that day, well, so was I. My task was to press him on some of his conduct in the Manson trial. There are big holes in Helter Skelter. Contradictions, omissions, discrepancies with police reports. The book amounts to an official narrative that few have ever thought to question. But I'd found troves of documents many of them unexamined for decades and never before reported on, that entangled Vince and a host of other major players 
like Manson's parole officer, his friends in Hollywood, the cops and lawyers and researchers and medical professionals surrounding him. Among many other things, I had evidence in Vince's own handwriting that one of his lead witnesses had lied under oath. I sometimes wonder if Vince could see what a bundle of nerves I was that day. I'm not a church-going person, but I'd gone to church that morning and said a little prayer. My mom always told me I should pray when I need help, and that day I needed all the help I could get. I hoped that my interview with Vince would mark a turning point in my seven years of intensive reporting on the Manson murders. I'd interviewed more than a thousand people by then. My work had left me, at various points, broke, depressed, and terrified that I was becoming one of those people. An obsessive, a conspiracy theorist, a lunatic. I'd let friendships fall away. My family had worried about my sanity. Manson himself had harangued me from prison. I'd faced multiple threats on my life. I don't consider myself a credulous man, but I'd discovered things I thought impossible about the Manson murders and California in the 60s. Things that reek of duplicity and cover-up, implicating police departments up and down the state. Plus the courts. Plus, though I have to take a deep breath before I let myself say it, the CIA. If I could get Bugliosi to admit any wrongdoing, or even to let a stray detail slip, I could finally start to unravel dozens of the other strands of my reporting. Maybe soon I could get my life back. Whatever that might look like. At the very least, I could know that I'd done all I could to get to the bottom of this seemingly endless hole. Sitting in his kitchen, though, and watching the hours wear on as Vince defended and fortified every point he made, my heart sank. He was stonewalling me. I could hardly get a word in edgewise. It's a tribute to your research, he told me. You found something that I did not find. In the closest thing I got to a concession, he said, some things may have gotten past me. But, he added, I would never in a trillion years do what you're suggesting, okay? Never. My whole history would be opposed to that. And number two, Tom, even if I had the thought that you're suggesting, of suborning perjury, it goes nowhere. It's preposterous. It's... It's silly. Who cares? It means nothing. Who cares? I've asked myself that a lot over the years. Was it worth investing so much of my time and energy in these? Some of the most well-known, worn-out crimes in American history? How did I end up falling into this anyway? I remember glancing over at Gail. Vince's wife, during his long, stentorian opening statement. She was leaning against the counter, looking exhausted, her eyelids drooping. Eventually, she excused herself to go upstairs and lie down. She must have heard it all a thousand times before. His scripted lines, his self-aggrandizement. When I'm down on myself, I imagine everyone feels like Gail did that day. Oh, no, not the Manson murders. Again. 
We've been through this. We've processed this. We know everything there is to know. Don't drag us back into this story. I was almost heartened then to see that Vince was so anxious. That's what kept me going, knowing that I'd gotten under his skin. Why would he be so committed to stopping this? And if what I'd discovered was really nothing, why had so many of his former colleagues told me otherwise? Another one of my sources had tipped off Vince about my reporting giving him the ludicrous idea that I believed he'd framed Manson. That was dead wrong. I've never been a Manson apologist. I think he was every bit as evil as the media made him out to be. But it is true that Stephen Kay, Vince's co-prosecutor on the case, and no friend of his, had been shocked by the notes I'd found in Vince's handwriting telling me they could be enough to overturn all the verdicts against Manson and the family. That was never my goal, though. I just wanted to find out what really happened. I don't know what to believe now, Kay told me. If he, Vince, changed this, what else did he change? I wanted to know the same thing, but Vince always found a way to change the subject. Where does it go, he kept asking. What's the point? The point, as I saw it, was that an act of perjury called the whole motive for the murders into question. Vince was too busy patronizing me about my motives to take that into consideration. How could I dare insinuate that he'd done something wrong? How could I live with myself if I tarnished his sterling reputation? He liked to bring up the man in the mirror, as if he and not Michael Jackson had popularized the phrase. You cannot get away, Vince said. You cannot get away from him. I tried to steer the conversation back to Manson, but Vince was having none of it. He wanted to recite some testimonials about his good character, to read them into the record. Both of us had showed up that day with two tape recorders. I was as scrupulous as he was and neither of us wanted to risk having an incomplete account of the conversation. Over and over, whenever the intensity mounted and Vince had something sensitive to say, he would demand that we go off the record, meaning each of us had to shut off two machines, sometimes just for a few seconds, only to turn them all back on again. Often, he'd forget one of his, and I'd have to say, Vince, you didn't turn it off. Off the record, he'd lash into me again, his eyes piercing under that silver crescent of hair. If you do the book, and it's legally defamatory, you have to realize one thing, he said. You have to realize I have no choice. I have to sue you. By the time I left his house, I had a headache from all his shouting, and the sun had set behind the San Gabriel Mountains. Gail had never bothered to come downstairs again. Outside, before I got to my car, Vince grabbed my arm and reminded me that a blurb from him could boost the sales of my book. And he'd be happy to offer one, provided the manuscripts passed muster with him. That's not a quid pro quo offer, he added. But it seemed like one to me. Driving away, I felt despondent. 
I'd just gone toe-to-toe with one of the most famous prosecutors and true crime authors in the world. Of course I hadn't broken him. I knew I wasn't alone either. Other reporters had warned me that Vince could be ferocious. One of them, Mary Nicewender of the Long Beach Press-Telegram and Independent, told me that Vince had threatened her back in the 80s when she was preparing an expose on him. He knew where her kids went to school, and it would be very easy to plant narcotics in their lockers. Actually, I didn't even need other sources. Vince himself had told me mere minutes before that he had no compunction about hurting people to exact justice or get revenge. As it turned out, my reprieve was short-lived. I arrived at my home in Venice Beach to find that he'd already left me a message, wanting to talk about a couple of follow-up things. I called him back, and we talked for another few hours. The next day, we had another phone call. Then another, then another. When he saw that I wouldn't back down, Vince only grew more exasperated. If you vaguely imply to your readers that I somehow concealed evidence from the Manson jury, he told me on the phone, whether you believe it or not, the only thing you're going to be accomplishing is jeopardizing your financial future and that of your publisher. Demanding an apology, He assured me that I was treading in dangerous waters. It's possible the next time we see each other, I'll be cross-examining you on the witness stand. Fortunately, that never happened. The next time I saw Vince, it was June 2011, and he was striding past me in an auditorium at the Santa Monica Library, where he was giving a talk. He'd noticed me, his adversary in the crowd, and paused as he made his way forward. Are you Tom O'Neill? Yes. Hi, Vince. Why are you so happy? I must have been smiling out of nervousness. I'm happy to see you, I said. Studying me a bit, he asked. Did you do something to your hair? No. It looks different. He kept walking. And that was it. We never spoke again. Vince died in 2015. Sometimes I wish he were alive to read what follows, even if he'd try to sue me over it. I feel foolish for having expected to get firm answers from him. I replay the scenario in my head, figuring out where I could have caught him in a lie, where I should have pressed him harder, how I might have parried his counterattacks, I really thought that with enough tenacity, I could get to the truth under all this. Now, most of the people who had the full story, including Manson himself, have died. And the questions I had then have continued to consume me for almost 20 years. But I'm certain of one thing. Much of what we accept as fact is fiction. 1. The Crime of the Century Two Decades Overdue My life took a sharp left-hand turn on March 21, 1999, the day after my 40th birthday, the day all this started. I was in bed with a hangover, as I'd been after countless birthdays before, and I felt an acute burst of self-loathing. 
I was a freelance journalist who hadn't worked in four months. I'd fallen into journalism almost by accident. For years, I'd driven a horse and carriage on the night shift at Central Park. And over time, my unsolicited submissions to magazines like New York had led to bigger and better assignments. While I was happy now to be living in Venice Beach and making a living as a writer, I missed New York, and mine was still a precarious existence. My friends had obligations. They'd started families. They worked long hours in busy offices. They led full lives. Even though my youth was behind me, I was so untethered that I could sleep into the afternoon. Actually, I couldn't afford to do much else at that point. I felt like a mess. When the phone rang, I had to make a real effort just to pick it up. It was Leslie Van Buskirk, my former editor from Us Magazine, now at Premier, with an assignment. The 30th anniversary of the Manson murders was coming up, and she wanted a reported piece about the aftershocks in Hollywood. So many years later, Manson's name still served as a kind of shorthand for a very American form of brutal violence the kind that erupts seemingly from nowhere and confirms the nation's darkest fears about itself. The crimes still held great sway over the public imagination, my editor said. What was it that made Manson so special? Why had he and the family lingered in the cultural conversation when other, even more macabre murders had faded from memory? Premier was a film magazine. So my editor wanted me to talk to Hollywood's old guard, the generation that had found itself in disturbing proximity to Manson, and to find out how they felt with three decades of perspective. It was a loose concept. Leslie trusted me to find a good direction for it, and to shape it into something unexpected. I almost said no. I'd never been particularly interested in the Manson murders, I was 10 years old when they happened, growing up in Philadelphia, and though my brother swears up and down that he remembers me keeping a scrapbook about the crimes, I can't recall how they affected me in the slightest. If anything, I thought I was one of the few people on the planet who'd never read Helter Skelter. Like an overplayed song or an iconic movie, Manson held little interest to me precisely because he was ubiquitous. The murders he'd ordered were often discussed as the crime of the century. And crimes of the century tend to be pretty well picked over. But I needed the job, and I trusted Leslie's judgment. We'd worked together on a number of stories at us. It was a monthly magazine then, not a weekly tabloid. And a piece like this, pitch black, would be a welcome departure from my routine as an entertainment writer which called for a lot of sit-down meetings with movie stars in their cushy Hollywood Hills homes, where they'd trot out lines about brave career choices and the need for privacy. That's not to say the work was without its twists and turns. I'd gotten in a shouting match with Tom Cruise about Scientology. Gary Shandling had somehow found a way to abandon me during an interview in his own home. And I'd pissed off Alec Baldwin, but who hasn't? I had some chops, in other words. 
but not much in the way of investigative bona fides. For a recent story about an unsolved murder, I'd chased down some great leads. But because my case was mostly circumstantial, the magazine sensibly decided to play it safe. And the piece came out toothless. This time, I thought I could do better. In fact, through the fog of my hangover, I remember thinking, this will be easy. I agreed to file 5,000 words in three months. Afterward, I thought, maybe I could move back to New York. Twenty years later, the piece isn't finished. The magazine no longer exists. And I'm still in L.A. A Picture Puzzle Before I interviewed anyone, I read Helter Skelter. I saw what all the fuss was about. It was a forceful, absorbing book with disquieting details I'd never heard before. In their infamy, the murders had always seemed to exist in a vacuum. And yet, reading Bugliosi's account, what had seemed flat and played out was full of intrigue. I made notes and lists of potential interviews, trying to find an angle that hadn't been worked over. Toward the beginning of the book, Bugliosi chides anyone who believes that solving murders is easy. In literature, a murder scene is often likened to a picture puzzle. If one is patient and keeps trying, eventually all the pieces will fit into place. Veteran policemen know otherwise. Even after a solution emerges, if one does, there will be leftover pieces, evidence that just doesn't fit. And some pieces will always be missing. He was right. And yet I wondered about the leftover pieces in this case. In Bugliosi's telling, there didn't seem to be too many. His picture puzzle was eerily complete. That sense of certitude contributed to my feeling that the media had exhausted the murders. The thought of them could exhaust me too. Bugliosi describes Manson as a metaphor for evil, a stand-in for the dark and malignant side of humanity. When I summoned Manson in my mind, I saw that evil, the maniacal gleam in his eye, the swastika carved into his forehead. I saw the story we tell ourselves about the end of the 60s, the souring of the hippie dream, the death throes of the counterculture, the lurid, Dionysian undercurrents of Los Angeles, with its confluence of money, sex, and celebrity. Because we all know that story, it's hard to discuss the Manson murders in a way that captures their grim power. The bare facts, learned and digested almost by rote, feel evacuated of meaning. The voltage that shot through America has been reduced to a mild jolt a series of concise Wikipedia entries and popular photographs. In the way that historical events do, it all feels somehow remote, settled. But it's critical to let yourself feel that shock, which begins to return as the details accumulate. This isn't just history. It's what Bugliosi called, in his opening statement at the trial, a passion for violent death. 
Despite the common conception, the murders are still shrouded in mystery, down to some of their most basic details. There are at least four versions of what happened, each with its own account of who stabbed whom with which knives, who said what, who was standing where. Statements have been exaggerated, recanted, or modified. Autopsy reports don't always square with trial testimony. The killers have not always agreed on who did the killing. Obsessives continue to litigate the smallest discrepancies in the crime scenes. The handles of weapons. The locations of blood splatters. The coroner's official times of death. Even if you could settle those scores, you're still left with the big question. Why did any of this happen at all? Something to shock the world. August 8, 1969. The front page of that morning's Los Angeles Times described an ordinary day in the city. Central Receiving Hospital had failed to save the life of a wounded policeman. The legislature had passed a new budget for schools, and scientists were optimistic that Mars's South Polar Cap could be hospitable to alien life. In London, the Beatles had been photographed crossing the street outside their studio, a shot that would become the cover of Abbey Road. Walter Cronkite led the CBS Evening News with a story about the devaluation of the franc. The space race was in full swing, and Americans were dreaming, sometimes with a touch of trepidation, about the science fictional future. Less than three weeks earlier, NASA had put the first man on the moon, an awe-inspiring testament to technological ingenuity. Conversely, the number one song in the country was Zager and Evans's In the Year 2525, which imagined a dystopian future where you ain't gonna need to tell the truth, tell no lies. Everything you think, do, and say is in the pill you took today. It would prove to be a more trenchant observation about the present moment than anyone would have thought. Late that night at the Spahn Movie Ranch, a man and three women got in a beat-up yellow 1959 Ford and headed toward Beverly Hills. A ranch hand heard one of the women say, We're gonna get some fucking pigs. The woman was Susan Sadie Atkins, 21, who'd grown up mostly in San Jose. The daughter of two alcoholics, she'd been in her church choir in the glee club and said that her brother and his friends would often molest her. She had dropped out of high school and moved to San Francisco, where she'd worked as a topless dancer and gotten into LSD. My family kept telling me, you're going downhill, you're going downhill, you're going downhill, she would say later. So I just went downhill. I went all the way down to the bottom. Huddled beside her in the back of the car, they'd torn out the seats to accommodate more food from the dumpster dives they often went on, was Patricia Katie Krenwinkel. 21, from Inglewood, Krenwinkel had developed a hormone problem as a kid, leading her to overeat and fear that she was ugly and unwanted. As a teen, she got into drugs and started to drink heavily. One day in 1967, she'd left her car in a parking lot, 
failed to collect the two paychecks from her job at an insurance company, and disappeared. In the passenger seat was Linda Kasabian, 20, from New Hampshire. She'd played basketball in high school, but she dropped out to get married. The union lasted less than six months. Not long after, in Boston, she was arrested in a narcotics bust. By the spring of 1968, she'd remarried, had a kid, and moved to Los Angeles. She sometimes introduced herself as Yana the Witch. And at the wheel was Charles Tex Watson, 23 and 6 foot 3 from East Texas. Watson had been a Boy Scout and the captain of his high school football team. He sometimes helped his dad, who ran a gas station and grocery store. At North Texas State University, he joined a fraternity and started getting stoned. Soon he dropped out, moved to California, and got a job as a wig salesman. One day he'd picked up a hitchhiker who turned out to be Dennis Wilson of the Beach Boys, a chance occurrence that changed both of their lives forever. That night in the Ford, all four were dressed in black from head to toe. None of them had a history of violence. They were part of a hippie commune that called itself the family. Living in isolation at the Spahn Ranch, whose mountainous 500 acres and film sets had once provided dramatic backdrops for Western-themed movies and TV shows, the family had assembled a New Age bricolage of environmentalism anti-establishment politics, free love, and apocalyptic Christianity, rounded out with a vehement rejection of conventional morality. More than anything, they lived according to the whims of their leader, the 34-year-old Charles Mills Manson, who had commanded them to take their trip that night. The four arrived at 10050 Cielo Drive, where the actress Sharon Tate lived with her husband, the filmmaker Roman Polanski. He was away in London at the time, scouting locations for The Day of the Dolphin, a movie in which a dolphin is trained to assassinate the President of the United States. The drive to Cielo would have taken about 40 minutes. It was just after midnight when they arrived. Benedict Canyon was quiet seemingly worlds away from the hustle and sprawl of Los Angeles. The house, built in 1942, had belonged to a French actress who'd modeled it on the Norman country estates of her youth. A long, low rambler at the end of a cul-de-sac, invisible from the street, it sat on three acres of bucolic, isolated land. Nestled against a hillside on a bluff, it afforded views of Los Angeles glittering to the east and Bel Air's Folsom Estates unfurling to the west. On a clear day, you could see straight out to the Pacific, ten miles out. Watson scaled a pole to sever the phone lines to the house. He'd been here before, and he knew where to find them right away. There was an electric gate leading to the driveway, but instead of activating it, the four elected to jump over an embankment and drop onto the main property. All of them were carrying buck knives. Watson also had a 22 buntline revolver. Kasabian remained on the outskirts, keeping watch. The other three crept up the hill toward the secluded estate. 
At the top of the driveway, they found Stephen Parent, an 18-year-old who'd been visiting the caretaker in the guest house to sell him a clock radio. He was sitting in his dad's white rambler, having already rolled his window down to activate the gate control. Watson approached the driver's side and pointed the revolver at his face. Please don't hurt me, I won't say anything, Parent screamed, raising his arm to protect himself. Watson slashed his left hand with the knife, slicing through the strap of his wristwatch. Then he shot Parent four times, in his arm, his left cheek, and twice in the chest. Parent died instantly, his blood beginning to pool in the car. Those four shots rang out through Benedict Canyon. But no one in the house at 10050 Cielo seemed to hear them. It was a rustic home of stone and wood. Its clabbered siding often described, in the many newspaper stories soon to follow, as tomato red. Beside the long front porch, a winding flagstone path led past a wishing well with stone doves and squirrels perched on its lip. There was a pool in the back and a modest guest house. The yard had low hedges, immense pines, and welcoming beds of daisies and marigolds. A white Dutch door opened into the living room, where a stone fireplace, beamed ceilings, and a loft with a redwood ladder provided a warm ambiance. Finding no open windows or doors, Watson cut a long horizontal slit in a window screen outside the dining room and gained entry to the house. He went to the front door to let Atkins and Krenwinkel in. In the living room, the three killers came across Wojciech, Wojtek Frakowski, a 32-year-old Polish emigre and an aspiring filmmaker asleep on the couch with an American flag draped over it. Frakowski was coming off a 10-day mescaline trip at the time. Having survived the brutal Second World War in Poland, He'd gone on to lead an aimless life in America, and friends thought there was something brooding and disturbed about him. He was part of a generation of Poles who'd been put on a crooked orbit. Now, rubbing his eyes to make out the figures clad in black and standing over him, Frakowski stretched his arms and, apparently mistaking them for friends, asked, what time is it? Watson trained his gun on Frakowski and said, be quiet. Don't move or you're dead. Frakowski stiffened, the gravity of the situation beginning to seize him. Who are you, he asked, and what are you doing here? I'm the devil, and I'm here to do the devil's business, Watson replied, kicking Frakowski in the head. In a linen closet, Atkins found a towel and used it to bind Frakowski's hands as best she could. Then, on Watson's instructions, she cased the house, looking for others. She came to a bedroom, the door ajar, where she saw a woman reclining on a bed, reading. Abigail Folger, 25, the heiress to a coffee fortune. She'd been staying at the house with Frakowski, her boyfriend, since April. Now she glanced up from her book, smiled, and waved at Atkins who responded in kind and continued down the hall. She peered into a second bedroom, where a man sat on the edge of a bed, 
talking to a pregnant woman who lay there in lingerie. The man, J. Sebring, 35, was a hairstylist. His shop in Beverly Hills attracted a wealthy, famous clientele. He'd been the first one to cut hair in a private room, as opposed to a barber shop. He'd served in the Navy during the Korean War. An intensely secretive man, he was rumored to allow only five people to keep his phone number. On the bed with him was his ex-girlfriend, Sharon Tate, then 26 and eight months pregnant with her first child. She'd recently filmed her biggest role to date in The Thirteen Chairs, and her manager had promised she'd be a star someday. Born in Dallas, Tate was the daughter of an army officer, and she grew up in cities scattered across the globe. Her beauty was such that she'd apparently stopped traffic, literally, on her first visit to New York. She'd been a homecoming queen and a prom queen. Even at six months old, she'd won a Miss Tiny Tot contest in Texas. A film career, she hoped, would get her noticed for something beyond her good looks. There on Cielo Drive, at the home she called the Love House, Tate was optimistic about the future. She believed her child would strengthen her marriage to Polanski, who sometimes demeaned her. Having reported back to Watson, Susan Atkins retied Frakowski's hands with a piece of nylon rope. She went to bring the others into the living room, returning with Folger at knife point, and then with Sebring and Tate. Come with me, she'd told them. Don't say a word or you're dead. In their shock and confusion, they offered the intruders money and whatever they wanted, begging them not to hurt anyone. Watson ordered the three who'd come from the bedrooms to lie face down on their stomachs in front of the fireplace. Tate began to cry. Watson told her to shut up. Taking a long rope, he tied Sebring's hands behind his back and ran a length around his neck. He looped the rope around Tate's neck next, and then Folger's, throwing the final length over a beam in the ceiling. Sebring struggled to his feet and protested. Couldn't this man see that Tate was pregnant? He tried to move toward Tate, and Watson shot him twice, puncturing a lung. Sebring crumpled onto the zebra skin rug by the fireplace. Since they were all tied together, his collapse forced the screaming Tate and Folger to stand on their toes to keep from being strangled. Watson dropped to his knees and began to stab the hairstylist incessantly. Standing up again, he kicked Sebring in the head. Then he told Krenwinkel to turn off all the lights. Tate asks, what are you going to do with us? You're all going to die, Watson said. Frakowski had managed to free his hands. He lurched toward Atkins, attempting to disarm her. But she forced her knife into his legs, stabbing him constantly as they rolled across the living room floor, a tangle of limbs glinting with steel. He pulled her long hair. His blood was spraying everywhere, and he'd been stabbed more than half a dozen times. But Frakowski staggered to his feet. Atkins had lost her knife, so he made a run for the front door and, with Atkins still pummeling him, got as far as the lawn. 
Watson halted him with two bullets and then tackled him to the ground, pounding the butt of his gun against the back of his head again and again, with such force that the right grip shattered and Frykowski's skull cracked. Inside, Tate was sobbing. Then Folger, who'd lifted the noose from her neck, shot out the front door too. She was halfway across the front lawn, her nightgown flowing behind her like an apparition when Krenwinkel caught up to her and brought her knife down, stabbing her 28 times. Watson joined in and Folger went limp, saying, I give up. I'm already dead. Take me. Drenched in blood and their own sweat, the two killers rose to see Frykowski yet again on his feet stumbling toward them. Soon they were stabbing him with the same mechanical precision, forcing steel through flesh, bone, and cartilage. The coroner tallied 51 stab wounds on the pole, plus 13 blows to the head and two bullet wounds. Atkins had remained in the house with Tate, who was whimpering, sitting on the floor, still in only lingerie and still bound by the neck to the dead body of her former lover, Sebring. She was the only one still alive. She was due to give birth to the child, a boy, in two weeks. Watson came back inside and ordered Atkins to kill her. Tate begged her to spare her life, to spare her unborn child. I want to have my baby, she said. Woman, I have no mercy for you, Atkins responded, locking her arm around Tate's neck from behind. You're going to die, and I don't feel anything about it. She stabbed her in the stomach. Watson joined in. The pair stabbed her 16 times until she cried out for her mother and died. Atkins dipped her fingers into one of Tate's wounds and tasted her blood. It was warm, sticky, and nice, she'd recall later. To taste death and yet give life, she said. Wow, what a trick. She soaked a towel in Tate's blood and brought it to the front door where, following Watson's instruction to write something that would shock the world, she scrawled the word pig. Their work was done. When Watson, Atkins, Krenwinkel, and Kasabian returned to the Spawn Ranch early that morning, they went to their beds and slept soundly. I was gone, Atkins later recalled. It was like I was dead. I could not think about anything. It was almost as if I passed out, blacked out. My head was blank. There was nothing in me. It was like I had given it all. At 10050 Cielo Drive was a scene of such callous, barbarous devastation that it shook something loose in the national psyche. August 8, 1969 and August 9, 1969, suddenly seemed to describe different realities. Media accounts were quick to infer something more sordid than ordinary homicide, something occult. One paper called the murders a blood orgy. Others reported ritualistic slayings and overtones of a weird religious rite. The facts were unavailable or misreported. 
Maybe drugs were involved. Maybe they weren't. Maybe Sebring had been wearing the black hood of a Satanist. Maybe he hadn't. The big picture was one of supernatural ruin. An officer at the scene said the bodies looked like mannequins dipped in red paint. Another said, it's like a battlefield up there. Pools of blood had soaked into the carpets. According to Time magazine, stray bullets were lodged in the ceiling. In Roman Polanski, whose films were errantly, even proudly occultist, the public found someone onto whom it could project its fatalism. A popular press account said that mere minutes before he learned of the murders, Polanski, at a party in London, had been discussing a friend's death. Eeny, meeny, miny, mo," he said. Who will be the next to go? With that, the phone rang, and he was summoned to hear that his wife and friends had been brutally murdered. It wasn't over. The next night at the Spahn Ranch, the same group convened, with three additions. There was the 18-year-old Stephen Clem Grogan, a musician and high school dropout, and the 19-year-old Leslie Lulu Van Houten, a former homecoming princess from Orange County who'd played the sousaphone in junior high. And there was Charles Manson, their leader. The seven of them piled into the beat-up Ford on a search for more victims. After nearly three hours of restive driving through Los Angeles and its environs, Manson finally settled on a home in Los Feliz at 3301 Waverly Drive, next door to a house he'd once stayed in. With no idea of who lived there, he broke into the house by himself, armed with a pistol and a knife. Others maintain that he brought Tex Watson with him. In any case, he spotted Lino LaBianca, 44, a grocery store owner asleep on the couch, a newspaper over his face. Lino's wife, Rosemary, 38, was in the bedroom. Rosemary was paranoid that people had been breaking in and moving their furniture around lately. And, like the whole city, she was spooked by the Tate murders the previous night. Even so, Manson was apparently able to walk right in the front door. And he tied up the couple by himself. Then he rejoined his acolytes at the bottom of the long driveway where they were waiting in the car. Manson chose Watson and Krenwinkel again as his executioners. This time he added Van Houten to the mix. She'd never so much as struck another person before that night. He told the three of them to go inside and kill everyone. They had only buck knives. They burst into the house, separated the couple, and stabbed Lino 26 times. They cut the word war into his stomach and impaled a carving fork beside it, its handle jutting out of his belly. They left a steak knife protruding from his throat. Rosemary suffered 41 stab wounds, many inflicted after she'd died. Before they left, the killers scrawled Helter Skelter in blood on the refrigerator, misspelling the Beatles song Helter Skelter. On the walls, they smeared rise and death to pigs in Lino's blood.
almost dead inside. The bloodshed, in its primitive defiance, a pregnant star slaughtered, a man perforated with kitchen utensils, confirmed a sense of rupture in America. The decade's subversive spirit had come on with too much fervor. Some reckoning was bound to come, or so it seemed in retrospect. The latent violence couldn't contain itself forever. The nation was immured in these events, in the motive, the manhunt, and then in 1970, the sensational nine-and-a-half-month-long trial. But Manson and his cohort weren't brought to justice for nearly four months. With the suspects unknown and at large, rumors proliferated and the tension reached a fever pitch. For a while, the police maintained that the two sets of murders were unrelated. The LaBiancas were victims of a copycat attack. Even Truman Capote, whose in-cold blood was only a few years old, fell into the speculative fervor, appearing on The Tonight Show to provide a fantasy explanation of the murders. He blamed them on one person, with the motive a fit of rage and a heaping portion of paranoia. As days turned into weeks and weeks to months, two separate teams of LAPD detectives, one assigned to Tate, the other to LaBianca, failed to share information, believing the crimes unconnected. As they lost valuable time pursuing false leads, doubt and ridicule followed them in the press. For almost four months, the police would say that they had no real idea who had committed some of the most appalling murders in the history of the country. Talk about the murders long enough, and inevitably someone will bring up Joan Didion's famous remark from the White Album. The 60s ended abruptly on August 9, 1969. The tension broke that day. The paranoia was fulfilled. There's the germ of truth in that. But the process wasn't so abrupt. It began that day, but it wasn't over really until December 1, 1969 when the police announced the crimes had been solved and the nation got its first glimpse of the killers. Here was the final fulfillment of paranoia, the last gasp of 60s idealism. At LAPD headquarters, the chief of police, Edward M. Davis, stepped up to an array of 15 microphones and announced to a stunned crowd of 200 reporters that the case was solved. Warrants were out for Charles Watson, Patricia Krenwinkel, and Linda Kasabian. More people would be named pending grand jury indictments. Davis added, to everyone's astonishment, that the Tate and LaBianca murders were connected. The suspects may have been responsible for a series of other unsolved homicides, too. He didn't name Manson or Susan Atkins that day because they were already in custody. In mid-October, Manson, with a welter of his followers, had been apprehended on auto theft charges at the Barker Ranch, a hideaway in Forbidding Death Valley. Its seclusion surpassed even that of the Spahn Ranch. Atkins had been charged with another unrelated murder, that of Gary Hinman, an old friend of Manson,
and was being held at the Sybil Brand Institute, a jail for women in Los Angeles County, where she bragged to cellmates about her complicity in the Tate murders. Those offhand remarks broke the case open for the LAPD, who began to connect the dots they'd been staring at for nearly four months. Journalists dug into the story. Images and mugshots of Manson and the family were emblazoned on front pages and TV screens around the world. The cognitive dissonance was intense. These weren't the faces of hardened criminals or escaped lunatics. They were hippies, stereotypical flower children in the bloom of wide-eyed youth. The men unshaven and long-haired, wearing beads and buckskin jackets. The women in blue jeans and tie-dyed tops, no bras, their hair tangled and unwashed. They talked like hippies, too, spouting an ethos of free love, eschewing monogamy and marriage in favor of sexual experimentation. They lived in roving communes, caravanning along the Golden Coast in technicolor bright buses and clunkers cobbled together from spare parts. They believed that hallucinogens strengthened the spirit and expanded the mind. They gave birth naturally and raised their children together in rustic simplicity. In other ways, though, their philosophy was Gnostic, verging on theological. Time did not exist, they proclaimed. There was no good, no bad, and no death. All human beings were God and the devil at the same time, and part of one another. In fact, everything in the universe was unified, one with itself. The family's moral code, insofar as it existed at all, was riven with contradictions. While it was wrong to kill animals, even the snakes and spiders in their bunkhouses had to be carefully spared, it was fine to kill people because a human life was inherently valueless. To kill someone was tantamount to breaking off a minute piece of some cosmic cookie, as Tex Watson later put it. If anything, death was something to be embraced, because it exposed your soul to the oneness of the universe. Where had these beliefs come from? The murderers had been raised and educated in solid, conventional American communities but no one wanted to claim them. The family, with its starry-eyed communalism, sexual frankness, and veneration of LSD, offered a screen onto which anyone could project his insecurities about the era's politics and pressures. The promise of the hippie movement had been in its willingness to forego cherished institutions in favor of the new and untested. After the Tate murders, it seemed that hippies and freaks were more than a risable sideshow. They could really undermine the status quo. Their promiscuity had always earned a lot of finger-wagging from concerned moralists, while others had looked on with thinly-veiled envy. Parents were worried that their kids would drop out, become hippies, and never get decent jobs. Everywhere, kids were hitchhiking. The consensus from the straight world was that hippies were mostly harmless. But you didn't want to be one. While there had been isolated incidents of violence attributed to hippies, none of it was as horrific, premeditated, and systematic as the murders committed by Manson's family.
and so much about the crimes was mired in uncertainty, from the motive to the body count. By some estimates, over that four-month period in 1969, as many as 33 people may have been killed simply because one man ordered it. This was something altogether different. On December 12, with the nation still reeling from the indictments, a piece in Time magazine drew specious parallels between hippies and violence. In the movement's invitation to freedom, the magazine warned, criminals and psychotics blossomed as easily as innocents and pacifists did. But how, Time asked, could children who had dropped out for the sake of kindness and caring, love and beauty be enjoined to kill? Dr. Louis Yablonsky, a sociologist who'd written a book called The Hippie Trip, argued that many hippies were lonely, alienated people. Even when they act as if they love, they can be totally devoid of true compassion. That is the reason why they can kill so matter-of-factly. Many hippies are socially almost dead inside. Some require massive emotions to feel anything at all. They need bizarre, intensive acts to feel alive. Sexual acts, acts of violence, nudity, every kind of Dionysian thrill. The Mechanical Boy And this Charles Mills Manson, whose face was suddenly everywhere, was he not the epitome of the Dionysian thrill-seeker? A 35-year-old ex-con, roughly half his life wild away in federal institutions, had ensnared the lives and minds of his followers, mainly young women. Numbering variously between two to three dozen, the majority of the family members had been under Manson's influence for less than two years, some not even close to that. Yet all of them would do anything Manson asked, without question, including slaughtering complete strangers. He had cultivated extreme compliance. Manson was an unlikely candidate for a charismatic leader. Born in Cincinnati, Ohio, to a 16-year-old mother and a father he never met, he'd known little but privation and suffering. Few would be naturally inclined to look up to him. And in the most literal sense, not many could. He was only five foot six. Manson spent his earliest years in neglect. When he was still an infant, his mother would leave him to go on benders with her brother, during one of which the pair decided to rob a guy who looked wealthy. Within hours, they'd been arrested and Manson's mother was imprisoned for several years. He was eight when she was released, and they spent the next months with a succession of unreliable men in seamy locales, his mom racking up another arrest for grand larceny. Eventually, she pursued a traveling salesman in Indianapolis, marrying him in 1943 and trying to cut back on her drinking. Manson, not yet nine, was already a truant, known to steal from local shops. His mother looked for a foster home for him. Instead, he was made a ward of the state and sent to the Guybalt School for Boys, a Catholic-run school for delinquents in Terre Haute, Indiana. He ran away. 
His mother took him back. The separation must have weighed on him, at least to go by his acolyte Watson, who later wrote that Manson had a special hatred for women as mothers. This probably had something to do with his feelings about his own mother, though he never talked about her. The closest he came to breaking his silence was in some of his song lyrics. I am a mechanical boy. I am my mother's boy. The mechanical boy made short work of the Guybalt school. Ten months in, he ran away again, turning to burglary to keep himself afloat. His crimes soon landed him in a correctional facility in Omaha, Nebraska. He ran away from there, too, and started breaking into grocery stores. At age 13, Manson was sent to the Indiana Boys School, a tougher institution, where he claimed the other boys raped him. He learned to feign lunacy to keep them at bay. And he kept running away, 18 times in three years. In February 1951, when he was 16, Manson broke out again, this time with a pair of other boys. They drove a stolen car across state lines, a federal offense. When a roadblock in Utah brought their escapade to an end, Manson was sent to the National Training School for Boys in Washington, D.C. Thus began a long stint in the federal reformatory system. From there, Manson went to the Natural Bridge Honor Camp, where he was caught raping a boy at knife point, to a federal reformatory in Virginia, where he racked up similar offenses, and to a reformatory in Ohio where a run of good behavior earned him an early release in 1954. Though caseworkers had taken frequent note of his antisocial behavior and psychic trauma. In less than a year's time, he had a wife and a baby on the way. He took on various service jobs, but he couldn't give up stealing cars, several of which he drove again across state lines. Those crimes, plus his failure to attend a hearing related to one of them, netted him a three-year sentence to Terminal Island, a federal prison in San Pedro, California. By the time he got out in 1958, his wife had filed for divorce, and he turned to pimping to make a living. The following May, he was arrested yet again, this time for forging a government check for $37.50. This got him another 10-year sentence but the judge, moved by the plea of a woman who said she was in love with him and wanted to marry him, suspended the sentence right away, letting him go free. Manson kept pimping, stealing cars, and scheming people out of their money. The FBI was surveilling him, hoping to bust him for violating the Mann Acts, which forbade the transportation of prostitutes across state lines. They were never able to bring the charge. But when Manson disappeared to Mexico with another prostitute, he was found in violation of his probation, and the 10-year sentence he'd received earlier was brought into effect. The same judge who'd granted him probation now decreed, if there ever was a man who demonstrated himself completely unfit for probation, he is it. Stuck in prison for the long haul, Manson took up the guitar and dabbled in Scientology. The staff noted his gift for charismatic storytelling and his enduring personality problems. 
he made no secret of his musical aspirations. From behind bars, he observed, with great interest and envy, the meteoric rise of the Beatles. When he was released at age 32, he'd spent more than half his life in the care of the state. He preferred life in prison, he said, so much so that he asked if he could simply remain inside. He has no plans for release, one report said. As he says, he has nowhere to go. Bloodthirsty Robots Reading early press accounts of Manson and the family, I found it hard to separate hyperbole from veracity. Manson was often made out as an artful seeker, an evil Pied Piper, as one paper put it, with reserves of obscure power. About a week after the family's arrests, a photograph of a wild-eyed Charles Manson, looking for all the world like a modern-day Rasputin, appeared on the cover of Life magazine. Inside the issue, the Manson women, many of them barely teenagers, posed with babies, slung over their slender shoulders. They spoke of their love and undying support for Charlie, whom they deemed the second coming of Christ and Satan in one. The media had already started to label the family a nomadic band of hippies and a pseudo-religious cult. The New York Times, striking a dramatic note, claimed that they lived a life of indolence, free sex, midnight motorcycle races, and blind obedience to a mysterious guru inflamed with his power to control their minds and bodies. The underground press, though, had a swell of sympathy for Manson. People thought he was innocent, that his status as a left-leaning communard had been overblown. Tuesday's Child, an L.A. counterculture paper geared toward occultists, named Manson their Man of the Year. Some didn't even care if he was behind the murders. Bernadine Dorn of the Weather Underground put it most outrageously. Offing those rich pigs with their own forks and knives and then eating a meal in the same room far out. The weathermen dig Charles Manson. I watched the first television footage of Manson. Cameras followed as bailiffs led him to a pre-trial hearing, shackled, stooped, and glaring. I saw a few traces of his fabled charisma, but I understood how his unsocialized air of pseudo-mysticism and jailhouse aggression seemed authentic. Manson brought a rollicking exhibition of controlled insanity whenever he appeared before the bench. He quarreled with the judge, arguing that he should be allowed to represent himself. The girls, for their part, mimicked their leader's behavior, publicly battling the judge and their court-appointed defense attorneys at every opportunity and refusing to obey even the most fundamental rules of courtroom decorum. That Manson had been apprehended in Death Valley, as abyssal a place as any in the United States, made him all the more transfixing. Reporters played up the Rasputin comparison, emphasizing his desert wanderer sorcery. He was a bearded, demonic Mahdi, wrote one journalist, who led a mystical, semi-religious hippie drug and murder cult. Another described him as a bushy-haired, wild-bearded little man with piercing brown eyes.
with the family, a hippie-type roving band. Manson's malevolence was seemingly inexplicable. Even in the doodles that he left behind on a courtroom legal pad, psychiatrists saw a psyche torn asunder by powerful thrusts of aggression, guilt, and hostility. Beneath this spectacle, I could glimpse the public's truer, more profound interest in the case. The same puzzle that would consume me. How and why had these people devolved into criminals? And more pointedly, could it happen to any average American child? Could anyone go too far? The trial started in July 1970. The jury was sequestered at the Ambassador Hotel, where, two years earlier, Bobby Kennedy had been assassinated. The Superior Courthouse in downtown Los Angeles became the center of a media circus unlike any the nation had ever seen. The six defendants, Charles Manson, Patricia Krenwinkel, Susan Atkins, Leslie Van Houten, Steve Grogan, and Linda Kasabian, received the kind of scrutiny known only to the most famous celebrities in the world. Tex Watson was tried separately from the other family members. He'd fled to Texas and had to be extradited to California. Vincent Bugliosi became the public face of the state and Manson's de facto foil. Though you'd never know it to look at them, the two were the same age. Manson was actually Bugliosi's senior by three months. Both were 35 when the trial began. But Bugliosi, with his three-piece suits and his receding hairline, was the very picture of the straight world, with its authority and moral gravity. Sometimes he looked old enough to be Manson's dad. In Helter Skelter, Bugliosi claims an aversion to the stereotyped image of the prosecutor as a right-wing law and order type intent on winning convictions at any cost. But that's exactly how he came across. In file photographs, he's often haloed in microphones, his solemn pronouncements helping the world make sense of the senseless. Journalists lauded his even-toned arguments. With his opening statement, Bugliosi, no less colorful a character than Manson, made what was already a sensational case even more so. The motive he presented for the murders was spellbindingly bizarre. In Bugliosi's telling, it crossed racism with apocalyptic, biblical rhetoric, all of it set to a melody by the Beatles, the English musical recording group, as he primly referred to them. Manson was an avid follower of the Beatles and believed that they were speaking to him through the lyrics of their songs. Helter Skelter, the title of one of the Beatles songs, meant the black man rising up against the white establishment and murdering the entire white race. That is, with the exception of Manson and his chosen followers, who intended to escape from Helter Skelter by going to the desert and living in the bottomless pit, a place Manson derived from Revelation 9. Nothing like this had ever been heard in a courtroom. People kill one another for all kinds of reasons, but they're usually personal, not metaphysical. Seldom had threads like these, racism, Rock music, the end times, been woven together in a single lethal philosophy. When Paul Watkins, a former family member, took the stand to elaborate on Helter Skelter, 
the details were even more jarring. Watkins spoke of a big underground city, secreted away in a hole wide enough that you could drive a speedboat across it. From the book of Revelation, the family knew the city would have no sun and no moon, and a tree that bears twelve different kinds of fruit. Subsisting on that fruit, in their subterranean Elysium, the family would multiply into 144,000 people. As insane and illogical as it sounded, Bugliosi explained, Manson's followers subscribed to his prophecy of Armageddon as if it had been delivered from the Holy Mount. They were willing to kill for him to make it a reality. But none of this explained why Manson had chosen the Tate and LaBianca homes as his targets. Manson had known the former tenant at the Tate House, Terry Melcher, a record producer and the son of Doris Day. Melcher had flirted with the idea of recording Manson, who had dreams of rock stardom, but he decided against it. Sometime in the spring before the murders, Manson had gone looking for Melcher at the house, hoping to change his mind. But a friend of the new tenants told him that Melcher had moved out. Manson didn't like the guy's brusque attitude. Consequently, the house on Cielo Drive came to represent the establishment that had rejected him. When he ordered the killings, he wanted to instill fear in Terry Melcher, Susan Atkins had said, sending a clear signal to the stars and executives who'd snubbed him. As for the LaBianca house, Manson had once stayed in the place next door. That house was no longer occupied, but it was no matter. The neighbors, Manson decided, would suffice as targets, because they too, no matter who they were, symbolized the establishment he sought to overthrow with Helter Skelter. The trial was the longest and most expensive in U.S. history at the time. It wasn't as straightforward as it might seem, because Manson himself hadn't actually murdered anyone. He hadn't set foot in the Tate home at all. And though he'd entered the LaBianca home, he left before his followers killed the couple. That meant Manson could be convicted of first-degree murder only through a charge of conspiracy. According to the legal principle of vicarious liability, any conspirator was also guilty of the crimes committed by his co-conspirators. In other words, if the prosecution could prove that Manson had ordered the killings, he would be guilty of murder, even having not laid a finger on any of the victims. Bugliosi had to show that Manson had a unique ability to control his followers' thoughts and actions, that they would do whatever he asked, even kill complete strangers. It would have been a complicated case even had things proceeded smoothly. But the family did all they could to throw sand in the gears. On the very first day of the trial, Manson showed up at the courthouse with an X carved into his forehead. The wound so fresh it was still bleeding. The next day, Atkins, Krenwinkel, and Van Houten arrived with their own bloody Xs. The women skipped down the courtroom hallways, three abreast, holding hands, singing nursery rhymes that Manson had written. They laughed at the photographers who jostled to get their pictures. During the trial, if Manson took umbrage at something, they took umbrage too, mimicking his profanity, 
his expressions, his outbursts. The judge, Charles Older, would often threaten to remove Manson. On one occasion, Manson returned the reproach. I will have you removed if you don't stop. I have a little system of my own. Do you think I'm kidding? Grabbing a sharp pencil, he sprang over the defense table, flinging himself toward Older. A bailiff intervened and tackled him, and the girls jumped to their feet too, chanting unintelligible verses in Latin. As he was dragged from the courtroom, Manson remained defiant, shouting, In the name of Christian justice, someone should cut your head off. It was a glimpse of the raw pugilism that ran beneath Manson's philosopher-guru facade. The judge began to carry a thirty-eight revolver under his robes. Things were no more orderly outside the courtroom, where, at the corner of Temple and Grand, Members of the family gathered each morning to hold sidewalk vigils. Barefoot and belligerent, they sat in wide circles, singing songs in praise of their leader. The women suckled newborns. The men laughed and ran their fingers through their long, unwashed hair. All had followed Manson's lead and cut X's into their foreheads, distributing typewritten statements explaining that self-mutilization symbolized their Xing themselves out of society. Bugliosi called the defendants bloodthirsty robots. A grandiloquent phrase, but an apt one. It captured the unsettling duality of the killers. At once, animal and artificial, divorced from emotion, and yet capable of executing the most intimate, visceral form of murder imaginable. Tex Watson would later hymn the detached, automated ecstasy of stabbing. Over and over, again and again, my arm like a machine, at one with the blade. Susan Atkins told a cellmate that plunging the knife into Tate's pregnant belly was like a sexual release. Especially when you see the blood spurting out, it's better than a climax. And behind them was Manson who lived for sex, even as he described himself as the mechanical boy. A Stage of Nothing After seven grueling months, the first phase of the trial drew to a close, and the jury, after ten days of deliberation, arrived at unanimous guilty verdicts. Now, in the second phase, the prosecution had to present an argument for putting the defendants to death. Their case, and the defense's counter-arguments, led to some of the most unnerving testimony yet, including a kind of symposium on LSD, not as a recreational drug, but as an agent of mind control. This death penalty phase of the trial entertained some of the same questions that engrossed and vexed me for the next two decades. Had Manson really brainwashed people? If so, how? And if one person was truly under the psychological control of another, then who was responsible for that person's actions? For the first time, the three convicted women, Atkins, Krenwinkel, and Van Houten, took the witness stand. One by one, they explained their roles in the murders, absolving Manson of any complicity and proclaiming their utter lack of remorse. The families of the victims, 
looked on in stunned silence as the women described their loved one's final moments in clinical detail. To kill someone, the women explained, was an act of love. It freed that person from the confines of their physical being. Almost unblinkingly, Susan Atkins recalled how Tex Watson had told her to murder Tate. He looked at her and he said, kill her, and I killed her. I just stabbed her and she fell, and I stabbed her again. I don't know how many times I stabbed her. Did she feel animosity toward Tate or the others? She shrugged. I didn't know any of them. How could I have felt any emotion without knowing them? She knew that what she was doing was right, she added, because it felt good. Patricia Krenwinkel said she'd felt nothing when she stabbed Abigail Folger 28 times. What is there to describe? It was just there, and it's like it was right. Why would she kill a woman she didn't even know? Well, it's hard to explain. It was just a thought, and the thought came to be. Sorry is only a five-letter word, Leslie Van Houten told the courtroom. It can't bring back anything. She'd helped stab Rosemary LaBianca 41 times. What can I feel, Van Houten said. It has happened. She is gone. As unrepentant as the women were, Bugliosi had his work cut out for him when it came to securing the death penalty. His reasoning relied on a seeming contradiction. He'd argued during the first phase of the trial that the women were brainwashed zombies, totally in Manson's thrall. Now he had to prove the opposite, that they were as complicit as Manson was. Although they were automatons, Bugliosi said, slavishly obedient to Manson's every command, the women still had, deep down inside themselves, such bloodlust that they deserved the death penalty. The defense argued that the women were merely pawns. Manson had used an almost technologically precise combination of drugs, hypnotism, and coercion to transform these formerly nonviolent people into frenzied psychopathic killers. At that point, scientists in the United States had been studying LSD for only a little more than a decade, it was far from a known quantity. Manson, the defense said, had used the drug to ply his impressionable followers, accessing the innermost chambers of their minds and molding them to his designs. Former members of the family have often recounted Manson's systematic brainwashing methods, beginning with the seduction of new recruits by bombarding them with love, sex, and drugs. On the witness stand, Paul Watkins outlined the near-weekly orgies that Manson orchestrated at the Spahn Ranch. The leader would hand out drugs, personally deciding everyone's dosages. And then, as Bugliosi writes in Helter Skelter, Charlie might dance around, everyone else following, like a train. As he'd take off his clothes, all the rest would take off their clothes. Charlie would direct the orgy, arranging bodies, combinations, positions. He'd set it all up in a beautiful way, like he was creating a masterpiece in sculpture, Watkins said. But instead of clay, he was using warm bodies. If any of those bodies had hang-ups or inhibitions, Manson would eliminate them. 
He'd force someone to do whatever he or she most resisted doing. One 13-year-old girl's initiation into the family consisted of her being sodomized by Manson while the others watched, Bugliosi wrote. Manson also went down on a young boy to show the others he had rid himself of all inhibitions. Tex Watson, in his 1978 memoir, Will You Die For Me?, tells a similar story. There was a room in the back of the ranch house totally lined with mattresses, he wrote, essentially set aside for sex. As we had any inhibitions, we still weren't dead. We were still playing back what our parents had programmed into us. Having made them feel free and wanted, Manson would isolate his followers from the world beyond the ranch, giving them daily tasks to support the commune and forbidding them from communicating with their families or friends. His was a world without newspapers, clocks, or calendars. Manson chose new names for his initiates. In order for me to be completely free in my mind, I had to be able to completely forget the past. Susan Atkins testified, the easiest way to do this is to have to change identity. Their induction was complete after they participated in lengthy LSD sessions, often stretching over consecutive days with no breaks, during which Manson only pretended to take the drug or took a much smaller dose. Clear-headed, he manipulated their minds with elaborate word games and sensory techniques he'd developed in the two years since his release from prison. Van Houten said that each acid trip further removed her from reality, until eventually even basic contradictions seemed tenable. Good could be bad. God could be Satan. Death was the same as life. There was little downtime or recovery time between trips, she said, making her detachment all the easier. Paul Watkins believed that Manson wanted to use LSD to instill his philosophies, exploit weaknesses and fears, and extract promises and agreements from his followers. And it worked. Watkins recalled an instance in which Manson told Susan Atkins, I'd like half a coconut, even if you have to go to Rio de Janeiro to get it. Atkins got right up and was on her way out the door when Charlie said, never mind. Manson excelled, Watkins said at locating deep-seated hang-ups. He took up residence in people's heads, leaving them with no point of reference, nothing to relate back to, no right, no wrong, no roots. They lived in a new reality summoned by LSD, which left them melt-twisted and free of pretension in timeless spirals of movement. Ironically, as his followers became more and more robotic, Manson taught them that people in the straight world were like computers, the family's Brooks Poston wrote. Their worldviews were simply a matter of society's programming, and any program could be expunged. On the stand, Susan Atkins described Sharon Tate as an IBM machine. Words came out of her mouth, but they didn't make any sense to me. For a family novitiate, the goal was to burn yourself out, to take so much LSD and listen to so much of Charlie's music that you returned to a purity and nothingness, resembling a new birth, Tex Watson wrote. This was called going dead in the head, 
and it let you incorporate into the collective, sharing one common brain. Bugliosi had to use a little prosecutorial hocus-pocus to tell stories like these. He argued that the Manson women had been psychologically compromised, but he didn't assert that Manson had actually created his killers. Despite Manson's talk about reprogramming, there was no template for one person's ever having done such a thing to another. Instead, Bugliosi purported that Manson's followers must have had some pre-existing homicidal impulse buried in their subconsciouses. Manson had learned to recognize and exploit that impulse. But even so, each woman was responsible for her actions. Then, as now, this position fascinated and perplexed me. It posited a form of brainwashing in which the brainwashed were still, to some degree, themselves. When it came time to decide on the death penalty, though, the defense called a series of psychiatric experts who disagreed. Manson had brainwashed his followers, they said, and those followers couldn't be culpable for the murders. LSD had given him a portal to the most labile parts of the subconscious, The scientists explained how acid could break down and reconstruct someone's personality. How a sober guide, intended to lead someone peacefully through the many hours of an acid trip, could abuse the role, inserting violent ideals and beliefs into their minds. With repetition and reinforcement, these beliefs took root and flourished, even when the followers were sober. Throw in other coercive techniques like sensory deprivation and hypnosis, both of which Manson embraced, and it was possible to rewrite someone's moral code such that she acknowledged no such thing as right or wrong. Dr. Joel Fort, a research psychiatrist who'd opened the nation's first LSD treatment center, was one of the defense witnesses. He believed that Manson had used LSD to produce a new pattern of behavior for the girls, resulting in a totally neutral system which saw death or killing in a completely different way than a normal person sees it, free of social concern, compassion, and moral values. In one of the most remarkable exchanges in the trial, Manson's attorney, Irving Kanarek, asked Dr. Ford if a school for crime could exist, peopled with social rejects, and fueled by LSD. Let us say, with your knowledge of LSD, you have a school for crime, and then you take them here and you program them to go out and commit a murder here, there, everywhere. Are you telling us that this can be done? That you can capture the human mind by such a school for crime? I am indeed telling you that, Fort said, and he'd never seen anything like it. He compared it to a government's ability, through the nebulous powers of patriotism, to condition soldiers to kill on its behalf. What no one brought up was how someone like Manson, with little formal education and so much prison time under his belt, had mastered the ability to control people this way. Whether you thought it was full-on brainwashing or merely intense coercion, the fact remained. He'd done it. No one else had. This remains the most enduring mystery of the case. It's the one that still keeps me up at night. 
And while all this back and forth about LSD is provocative, it feels like an insufficient explanation. In Helter Skelter, Bugliosi grapples with this unfathomable riddle. How did Charles Manson, a barely literate ex-con who'd spent more than half his life in federal institutions, turn a group of previously peaceful hippies, among them a small-town librarian, a high school football star, and a homecoming princess, into savage, unrepentant killers in less than a year. Bugliosi conceded that he still didn't have the answer. All these factors contributed to Manson's control over others, he writes. But when you add them all up, do they equal murder without remorse? Maybe. But I tend to think there is something more some missing link that enabled him to so rape and bastardize the minds of his killers that they would go against the most ingrained of all commandments, thou shalt not kill, and willingly, even eagerly, murder at his command. It may be something in his charismatic, enigmatic personality, some intangible quality that no one else has yet been able to isolate and identify. It may be something that he learned from others. Whatever it is, I believe Manson has full knowledge of the formula he used. And it worries me that we do not. In the end, Manson and his followers got the death penalty anyway. Bugliosi said that they had, coursing through their veins, the willingness to kill others. For the jury, as for the public, that was a much more comfortable truth. These people were an aberration. Brainwashing, complete loss of agency. These were difficult to contemplate, let alone to accept. When you take LSD enough times, you reach a stage of nothingness, Manson had said in court. You reach a stage of no thought. No one wanted to dwell on that. Ingrained evil, teased out of young women by a mastermind. That was something. And something was better than a stage of nothing. When the jury delivered death sentences to the four defendants, Manson, Krenwinkel, Atkins, and Van Houten, Kasabian had become a witness for the prosecution and was granted immunity, the three women sprang to their feet. Their heads were freshly shaved, as Manson's was. They'd enlarged the X's on their foreheads, as Manson had and they were livid. You have judged yourselves, Patricia Krenwinkel screamed at the jury. Better lock your doors and watch your own kids, Susan Atkins warned. Your whole system is a game, Leslie Van Houten shouted. You blind, stupid people. Your children will turn against you. Out on the street, Sandy Good, one of Manson's fiercest loyalists, looked into a TV camera and said, Death? That's what you're all going to get. With that, the family was swept off the national stage, and the public could relegate these grisly crimes to the past. Seven people had been brutally murdered. But the nation was confident that we knew how and why, and that the evil people were behind bars. Two. An aura of danger. Live freaky, die freaky. 
When I started interviews for my premiere piece in April 1999, much of what you've just heard was unknown to me. I'd gotten through Helter Skelter, and I knew the murders had left a mark on Hollywood. But that was about all. In a few years, I'd develop a deep obsession with the case. I'd have the trial transcript at my fingertips and binders full of press clippings at my disposal. But in the beginning, I was flummoxed. Helter Skelter had captured the story definitively. Its author had ensured that Manson was locked away. How could a magazine feature top that? Leslie, my editor, had given me leeway in finding an angle, but her first suggestion, how did the crimes change Hollywood, wasn't enough for me. And I suspected it wouldn't be enough for her either. My earliest weeks of interviews pulled me in wildly different directions. At first, I was compelled by the way the murders had sundered friendships in Hollywood, revealing strong opinions about the era's morality, or lack thereof. As I cycled through Hollywood cliques, I found that I was reigniting 30-year-old rumors and rivalries. Everyone over time assigned the blame for the crimes a little differently. I was dealing in memories that had survived decades of erosion. Even my most reliable sources were shaky on the details. As for the unreliable sources, I kept reminding myself that many of them were washed-up Hollywood personalities, often in their dotage. Their memories had warped to accommodate their bruised egos, their ulterior motives, and above all, their sense that they were at the center of any story worth telling. A lot of the contradictions I heard centered on the house at Cielo Drive and the decadent scene there in the months before the murders. That house still signified a lot in Hollywood. For some, the death of Sharon Tate and her friends aroused as much fear as it did grief. After the murders, the media had blamed Hollywood's unreality and hedonism, as the New York Times' Stephen Roberts put it, for having fostered an atmosphere where mass homicide was all but guaranteed. Roberts, then Los Angeles bureau chief of the Times, talked to a lot of Hollywood people in those first weeks. Bugliosi quoted him in Helter Skelter. All the stories had a common thread, that somehow the victims had brought the murders on themselves. The attitude was summed up in the epigram, live freaky, die freaky. The problem was, 30 years later, no one could agree on who had brought the freakiness into the home, and why. I had to wonder if there was a conspiracy of silence in Hollywood. It had taken months for the LAPD to crack the case. In that time, Manson and the family had almost certainly killed others. If Hollywood hadn't circled the wagons, it seemed there was a good chance the investigation could have ended sooner. So many of the people I spoke to had strong ideas about why these murders had happened. And yet none of them had spoken to the police, and many remained unwilling to go on the record with me. The one thing everyone seemed to agree on, everyone outside of the DA's office, that is, is that Bugliosi's helter-skelter motive didn't add up. It had worn thin with police and Hollywood insiders. 
and it was wearing thin with me too. I tried to unpack this idea that Manson chose the Cielo house to instill fear in Terry Melcher, the record producer whose rejection had apparently so enraged Manson that he activated a race war. One problem was that Melcher, by all accounts, had no idea that this was why the family attacked his former home. They never told him that they wanted him to be afraid. They didn't follow the murders with any kind of communication to him. According to Bugliosi, Melcher never realized the crimes had anything to do with him until months later, when the police got in touch with him. How was this motive supposed to work if Melcher was never apprised of it? The grander scheme underlying Helter Skelter? To start a massive race war by making it look as if Black Panthers were behind the murders? Didn't land either. Although Manson was clearly a racist, and while he had a wild eschatological philosophy, no one believed even for a second that black militants were behind these killings, as he'd hoped it would seem. So was the family just too dumb or too drugged to pull it off? Or was there another reason for the murders that had nothing to do with race wars and scaring Melcher? It seemed to me that the Manson murders had garnered much of their infamy, and Bugliosi much of his fame, from the helter-skelter motive. A hippie race war spawned by an acid-drenched, brainwashing ex-con. It was such a fantastical conceit that the murders lived on in pop culture. With a more commonplace explanation, a drug burn, say, or Hollywood infighting, they would have faded into history after a few years. And Bugliosi would never have written the most popular true crime book of all time. With an eye on other possible motives, I focused on three questions in my first weeks of reporting. First, did the victims at the Tate House have something to do with the killers? Second, had Terry Melcher known who the killers were immediately after the crimes? and failed to report them to the authorities? Third, and most sensationally, were the police aware of Manson's role in the crimes much earlier than it seemed? Had they delayed arresting the family to protect the victims, or Melcher and his circle from scrutiny? Here, as neatly as I can tell it, is what I learned in the early frantic weeks of my reporting. Just as important, is what I didn't learn, which goes a long way toward explaining how a simple three-month magazine assignment turned into a 20-year obsession. The dancing was different. Julian Wasser, a photographer for Life magazine, was my first interview. Almost right away, I felt the kind of cognitive dissonance that followed me through my reporting. I'd met my sources at a fancy restaurant of their choice. In this case, Le Petit Four, a sunny sidewalk cafe in West Hollywood. And within minutes, as the conversation turned toward violence, the plush setting would feel totally incongruous. Such was the case with Wasser, who told me over a tuna niçoise salad about one of the saddest days of his life. Days after the murders, as part of an editorial for life, Wasser had accompanied Roman Polanski on his first return visit to the house on Cielo Drive. 
One of Wasser's pictures from that day is a study in grief. Polanski, in a white t-shirt, sits slumped and devastated on the front porch of his home. His eyes carefully averted from the faded word pig, written in his wife's blood on the front door. It was too soon, Wasser told me. He'd shadowed Polanski as he moved through the blood-stained rooms. It wasn't a home anymore. It was evidence. There was fingerprint dusting powder all over the bedroom and the phones. And there was blood in the carpet. It was thick, like jello. And there was so much of it that hadn't even dried yet, Wasser said. You could still smell it. Salty. Carnal. The odor reminded him of a slaughterhouse. Right away, Wasser regretted the assignment. But Polanski wanted him there, even at his most vulnerable moment. It wasn't an exercise in vanity, at least not entirely. Hoping to help solve the murders, Polanski had invited along a psychic, Peter Herkos, whose alleged clairvoyance had made him a minor celebrity. Wasser was enlisted to provide duplicates of his photos to Herkos, who could glean psychic vibrations from them. Polanski led them to the nursery, which Tate had carefully furnished and decorated in anticipation of the baby. Roman went over to the bassinet and just started crying. I said, this is such a private moment. I shouldn't be here. And he said, please don't take any more pictures right now. It was just the saddest thing I've ever seen in my whole career. I've never seen anything in my mind so intrusive, even though he had invited me. The enormity of it, Wasser added. Going into this pregnant woman's bedroom and seeing her intimate area covered with fingerprint powder and realizing what happened there. Herkos, it turned out, didn't share Wasser's sense of solemnity. A week before the life story ran, pirated reproductions of Wasser's photos appeared on the front page of the tabloid The Hollywood Citizen News. The psychic had sold his copies, vibrations and all. Wasser described the great fear that descended on Los Angeles after the murders. I lived in Beverly Hills. If you went to someone's house, they wouldn't let you in. The normal selfishness and paranoia was magnified a hundredfold. It was another reason for not answering your door. I heard a lot of that in my first interviews. Sales of burglar alarms and security systems had apparently soared after the murders, and people were quick to ditch their drug stashes. There's a famous anonymous line from Life, from the very article featuring Wasser's pictures, actually. Toilets are flushing all over Beverly Hills. The entire Los Angeles sewer system is stoned. Others took more drastic precautions. At the funerals of his friends, Tate and Sebring, Steve McQueen carried a pistol in his belt. His publicist, Warren Cowan, told me. The actor was in the throes of an anxiety that pervaded Hollywood, where everyone suspected that the killer might be among them. Dominic Dunn, the Vanity Fair journalist known for his reporting on the entertainment industry, told me Hollywood did change. The dancing was different. The drugs were different. The fucking was different. 
He and his wife were so frightened that they sent their kids to stay with their grandmother in Northern California. Tina Sinatra, Frank's daughter, said that her father had hired a security guard. He was there from sundown to sunrise for months, she explained. Mom fed him to death, I think. He was uniformed with a gun, and he sat in the kitchen all night. I can remember the whole tone of this city afterward. It defined fear. In 1999, apparently, that fear was still alive and well, at least among Hollywood's A-list, many of whom declined to speak to me, even though 30 years had passed. I was rebuffed by the intimates of Tate, Polanski, and Sebring, sometimes with vehemence, sometimes with tersely worded emails or phone calls, no interest, doesn't want to be involved, or just the one word, no. Warren Beatty and Jane Fonda said no. Jack Nicholson and Dennis Hopper, both reputedly close to Tate and Polanski, no, no. Candace Bergen, Terry Melcher's girlfriend at the time of the murders, said no too. As did David Geffen, Mia Farrow, and Angelica Houston, among others. As the rejections piled up, I had my own bout of paranoia. Had some memo gone out? My requests had asked simply if they'd like to discuss the after-effects of the murders on their community. It didn't feel like I was prying. And Premier, since it was dedicated entirely to the movie business, usually garnered some enthusiasm from this crowd. Bruce Dern, nope. Kirk Douglas, nope. Paul Newman. No. Elliot Gould, Anne Margaret, Hugh Hefner, no, no, no. All told, more than three dozen people turned me down. Some were household names, but plenty of the decidedly non-famous found reasons to decline, too. It was looking like I'd have a story about Hollywood with no one from Hollywood in it. Hoping for something more revelatory, I went to less well-known names. Peter Bart, the longtime editor-in-chief of Variety, had been close to Polanski. And what he told me gave me some semblance of a lead. I must confess that that crowd was a little scary, Bart said, referring to Polanski and Tate's circle. There was an aura of danger around them. There was an instinctive feeling that everyone was pushing it and things were getting out of control. My wife and I still talk about it, he said. Anybody who underestimates the impact of the event is full of shit. This was my first taste of the live-freaky-die-freaky view. The idea that Polanski's circle, with its bacchanalian parties and flexible morals, had brought about their own murders. I thought there might be something here. After all, the murders had been solved and the victims had done seemingly nothing to instigate them. But Bart, and others I'd soon speak to, still claimed that their lifestyles were to blame. I had to get closer to those who'd known Sharon and Roman, anyone who'd attended those supposedly lurid parties. But the rejections kept coming. I'd been in touch with Diane Ladd's manager, having heard that Ladd, who'd been married to Bruce Dern at the time of the murders, ran in some of the same circles as Tate and Polanski. 
Her manager promised to set up an interview. The next day, she called back, saying that Ladd had had an emotional, visceral reaction. The manager said, I don't know what happened with Diane back in the 60s, but she adamantly refused to have anything to do with the piece. She even told me that if her name was in it, she was going to contact her attorney. Peter Fonda gave me yet another no. Not long afterward, I came across him at a gas station in the middle of the Mojave Desert, of all places, some five hours outside L.A. True to form, he was in leathers and on a Harley. I approached him with my business card and tried to explain the story as succinctly as possible. He seemed receptive. But later, when I followed up again, the answer was still no. I mentioned the rash of rejections to Peter Bart. His observations stayed with me, especially as the months wore on and I began to see that Manson might have been more plugged into Hollywood than anyone cared to admit. Just the fact that they're all saying no, he said, is fascinating. Bugliosi's First Slip There was one major player who agreed to talk to me, Vincent Bugliosi. Not only did he sign on for an interview, he invited me to his new home in Pasadena. The same one where years later he would threaten to hurt me like I'd never been hurt before if I published my findings. There was no sign of that animosity during our first meeting. On a sunny spring day, Bugliosi gave me six hours of his time, driving me around to show me various landmarks related to the crime and enjoying a long lunch with me in one of his favorite restaurants. I was flattered to have captured his attention. Here was the man who'd put away one of the monsters of the 20th century. Later, I would question the motive behind all his generosity. A prosecutor makes a lot of enemies over the course of his career. And Bugliosi, I'd learn, made more than most, both in and out of the DA's office. But considering that he'd once fielded death threats from Manson himself, he lived in a surprisingly unprotected home quintessentially suburban. He and Gail, his wife of 43 years, were still moving in when I visited that April of 1999. Bugliosi, white-haired, lean and blue-eyed, greeted me with a firm handshake and a litany of apologies for the unpacked boxes. In the living room, flowers of all kinds, dried, artificial and real, burst from pots and vases. Their kitchen, adorned with Gail's chicken and rooster tchotchkes, could have been right out of a 50s sitcom. Bugliosi picked up a hairless cat that brushed against his leg, a rare Siamese breed, he told me. The cat's name was Sherlock, because he snoops everywhere. Gail put out a plate of cookies and a pair of iced teas for us. Bugliosi was a fast talker. He sent a tsunami of words in my direction, sometimes jumping out of his chair for no apparent reason. Gail, an island of repose by comparison, busied herself at the kitchen counter. I caught her rolling her eyes as her husband told me that the movie version of Helter Skelter from 1976 was number one that year and had the biggest ratings in TV history prior to Roots. 
He'd essentially been on a 30-year victory lap, and he had his talking points down cold. It was hard to get him off script. As he drove me around that day, he was still reliving his encounters with Manson in the courtroom. Sometimes, it seemed he was quoting almost verbatim from Helter Skelter. On the surface, he seemed chatty and forthcoming. But everything he said, for hours, was canned. Still hoping for a good angle, I tried to probe, however gently, at the holes I'd noticed in Helter Skelter. For one, how had the cops missed so many clues in the case? Why hadn't they solved it much sooner? As he did in his book, Bugliosi blamed sloppy police work. They never would have cracked the case without him, he told me. I wanted his take on the Cielo House's caretaker, William Garretson, who'd been the only one on the property to survive that night. Garretson lived in the modest guest house separated from the main home. His story was so unlikely that at first, he'd been the LAPD's number one suspect. He swore that his stereo had been playing loud enough to drown out the murders. He'd heard no part of the brutal slaughter, even though the screaming and the gunshots had occurred only 60 feet from his bedroom window. And Bugliosi concurred albeit reluctantly. The police, he reminded me, had conducted sound tests that supported Garretson. I moved on to Terry Melcher. If Manson had wanted to teach him a lesson, why did he order the killings of people who had no real connection to him, other than that they'd lived at the same address at different times? Melcher didn't know any of the victims at the Tate house, I couldn't even find evidence that he'd met any of them. Plus, by Bugliosi's own account, Manson sent his followers to the Cielo house knowing full well that Melcher didn't live there anymore. Bugliosi dodged those questions, instead reiterating the terror that Melcher felt during the trial and for years afterward, fearing that Manson or someone from the family still wanted him dead. Could he put me in touch with Melcher? The mere fact that I'd asked seemed to unnerve him a bit. He said I'd have a hard time getting him to talk. Later, when I did manage to track down Melcher, I'd find out why. As the sun was setting after many hours of talk, I asked Bugliosi if he could share anything with me about the case that had never been reported before. The journalist's Hail Mary. I could see by the furrow of his brow that he was really thinking about it. I pulled a book from my bag. Barney Hoskins' Waiting for the Sun, a history of L.A.'s music industry. I'd been reading it for research. What with all the rejections I'd gotten, I had a little more free time on my hands than I'd expected, and I wanted Bugliosi to look at a passage I'd highlighted. Hoskins alleged that a few S&M movies had been filmed at the Tate House, and that a drug dealer had once been tied up and flogged against his will at a party there. Other sources, including Ed Sanders' 1971 book, The Family, had made the same claims. But Bugliosi had conspicuously omitted the anecdote from Helter Skelter. Bugliosi seemed to be in the midst of some kind of internal debate. 
After what felt like a long silence, he told me to turn off my recorder. This can never be attributed to me, he began. Just say it's from a very reliable source. I'll explain later in the audiobook why I'm treating this as an on-the-record response. When he'd joined the case, the detectives told Bugliosi they'd recovered some videotape in the loft at the house on Cielo Drive. According to detectives, the footage, clearly filmed by Polanski, depicted Sharon Tate being forced to have sex with two men. Bugliosi never saw the tape, but he told the detectives, Put it back where you found it. Roman has suffered enough. There's nothing to gain. All it's going to do is hurt her memory and hurt him. They're both victims. It was a tawdry aside, I thought. And anyway, Bugliosi had reported most of this episode before. In Helter Skelter, he wrote that the cops had recovered a tape of Roman and Sharon making love, and that it had been discreetly returned to their home. Polanski had found it not long after, on the same visit with Julian Wasser and the psychic. He climbed the ladder to the loft, Bugliosi writes, found the videotape LAPD had returned, and slipped it into his pocket, according to one of the officers who was present. The more I thought about it, the more startled I was that the footage was so sordid. It gave yet more weight to the live freaky, die freaky motto. And soon after, it occurred to me, if Polanski had coerced Sharon into sleeping with two men and filmed it, wasn't that spousal abuse? Roman's a sicko, Bugliosi had said. He was making her do it. Was it rape? If Bugliosi was telling the truth, and that was a big if, I soon acknowledged, the tape seemed like something that could have raised Polanski's profile as a suspect, and something, therefore, that the police should have retained as evidence. I hoped that I could verify Bugliosi's story. It was the first piece of new information I'd found so far. In my haste to keep reporting, I'd failed to see that the revelation came with a slip-up on his part one that would take me more than six years to recognize. He couldn't have told the detectives to put the tape back in the loft. As a DA, he wasn't assigned the Tate murder case until November 18, 1969, months after Polanski's August 17 return visit to the house. In the early phases of a case, police need to talk to DAs like Bugliosi to authorize search warrants. If he'd learned about the tape from the detectives back in August, if he'd been the one, as he claimed, who ordered its return to the house, then something in the police investigation had necessitated his involvement much earlier than he'd ever acknowledged. Maybe it was something trifling. Maybe it was something he felt he'd had to cover up to protect some celebrity's reputations. The point was, we'd never know because it was something he'd hidden from his readers. Though I hadn't caught this mistake, there were more variations to come. When I finally found them, it would change the whole tenor of our relationship. Ugliness and Purity Helter Skelter opens with a famous sentence. It was so quiet, one of the killers would later say, 
you could almost hear the sound of ice rattling in cocktail shakers in the homes down the canyon. The first half of the book, concerning the police investigation, traffics in the dread of that sentence. Given Bugliosi's revelation to me, it was the first place I started looking for a break. If he had changed one detail about the case, could he have changed others? That question would recur throughout my entire investigation. The LAPD had assigned two separate teams of detectives to the cases, one for the Tate murders and one for the LaBiancas. Despite the similarities in the crimes, the LAPD had concluded, as mentioned earlier, that the LaBiancas were the victims of a copycat crime. After all, there was seemingly little common ground between the Lux Beverly Hills set at Cielo and the suburban couple in Los Feliz. The police fanned out in what would become the largest murder investigation in Los Angeles history. The LaBianca team operated in relative anonymity. The press couldn't muster much interest in their case, at least not when Sharon Tate's killer was on the lam. On the other side of town, by contrast, the Cielo crime scene was like a carnival. The LAPD had assigned 21 men to the case. Helicopters hovered over the hilltop property. Guards stood watch around the clock at the entry gate. Detectives moved to lock down their initial suspect right away. William Garretson, the lone survivor of the night's massacre, was dragged out of the guest house sleepy-eyed, shirtless, and barefoot, shoved into a patrol car, and driven straight to headquarters, where he was read his rights and charged with five murders. Garretson, only 19, couldn't explain why he hadn't heard anything that night, except to say it might have been because he had the stereo on. For three days, he was on front pages around the world as he languished behind bars, Finally, police concluded he was just a slow kid in the wrong place at the wrong time. In those same first 24 hours, the Tate detectives got a tip. A friend of the victims had been telling people that he knew who the murderers were. Convinced that his knowledge would get him killed, the friend had gone into hiding. He was Witold Kazanowski an artist and Polish emigre who'd known the Tate crowd through his countryman, Wojtek Frykowski. Police tracked him down through Roman Polanski's manager. Lured by the promise of 24-hour police protection, Kazanowski finally consented to be interviewed. He believed that Frykowski had been involved in the drug trade with a host of career criminals and other unsavory characters. One of these was a man named Harris Pick Dawson, who had, at a recent party, threatened to kill Frakowski. Remember how Susan Atkins wrote the word pig on the front door of Cielo Drive in Sharon Tate's blood? Kazanowski thought that word was pick, as in Pick Dawson. The police found him credible, especially because they'd learned about another altercation at the Cielo house that past spring when Tate and Polanski had thrown a going-away party. Although the couple had moved in only on February 15, by the end of March, they had to leave for separate film jobs in Europe, where they'd remain for most of the summer. 
At their farewell party, attended by more than a hundred guests, three gate crashers had behaved so aggressively that Polanski had kicked them out. They were Billy Doyle, Tom Harrigan, and Pick Dawson. Hoping to ask Polanski about these three, police anxiously awaited his return from London, scheduled for the evening of August 10, the day after the bodies had been discovered. Polanski flew back to L.A. under heavy sedation, with his longtime producer, Gene Gutowski, and two friends, Warren Beatty and Victor Lowndes. At the airport, he was spirited through a side exit to a waiting car, while Gutowski read a statement to the throngs of press. The chairman of Paramount Pictures had arranged a suite for Polanski on the studio lot, a place where he could avoid the prying eyes of the press, and the killers too, if they were out to get him. But before he arrived at Paramount, Polanski had his car stop at a Denny's parking lot for a hushed conversation with Kazanowski. Bugliosi never reported this in Helter Skelter. The media never knew about it. To me, it was something to explore. After they chatted at Denny's, Kazanowski got in the car and headed to Paramount with the director. They talked all the way to the lot. When the LAPD arrived at the studio that evening, they were barred from entering Polanski's suite until he'd finished the debriefing. Bugliosi didn't find that worth mentioning. He only wrote that Polanski was taken to an apartment inside the Paramount lot, where he remained in seclusion under a doctor's care. The police talked to him briefly that night, but he was, at that time, unable to suggest anyone with a motive for the murders. Polanski's friends, Lowndes and Gutowski, confirmed the secret Denny's meeting in interviews with me. Both defended it as a simple exchange of information between two longtime friends. And yet Polanski, in a polygraph exam with the LAPD, had denied knowing Kazanowski at all. Sensing there was more to the story, I sought out Kazanowski, who, like so many others connected to the victims, had never spoken to reporters about the murders. Over the phone, Somewhat to my surprise, he promptly agreed to discuss the case with me. Yes, he said, the Denny's meeting had happened, but despite its seeming urgency, there was nothing so furtive about it. He'd only answered some of Polanski's questions about Frakowski's possible drug dealing. Kazanowski emphasized that his suspicion, that Pick Dawson had targeted Frakowski, sent the police on a months-long chase that amounted to nothing. And yet it was easy to see how Frakowski may have gotten in over his head in those months before the murders. It was a turbulent time at the Cielo house, I learned, much more fraught than Bugliosi had reported. When Tate and Polanski left, they gave Frakowski and Abigail Folger the run of the place, and things got weird. The couple threw parties all the time. The door was open to anyone and everyone. The crowds grew rowdier, the drugs harder. Not just pot and hash, but an abundance of cocaine, mescaline, LSD, and MDA, which was then a new and fairly unheard of synthetic. Frakowski was especially enamored of it. Dawson, Doyle, and Harrigan, the same trio who'd been booted from the party in mid-March 
were now regular guests at the house, sometimes staying for days at a time. They also supplied most of the drugs. By July, the three men, all international smugglers, had cornered the market on MDA, which was manufactured in Doyle and Harrigan's hometown Toronto. Frakowski wanted in. Although he didn't have much cash, Folger, his heiress girlfriend, kept him on a tight leash financially, he'd negotiated a deal with his new friends, making himself a middleman between them and Hollywood. Soon after we spoke on the phone, Kazanowski visited Los Angeles. I met him in the backyard of his friend's home in West Hollywood. A handsome man with a craggy face, thick black hair, and robust blue eyes, he spoke with a heavy accent and a reserved, contemplative air. Though it was maybe three in the afternoon, he opened a bottle of red wine and poured us each a generous glass. He'd been the last of Frakowski's friends to see him alive. The two had gotten together at his gallery just hours before the murders. He'd intended to visit the Tate house that night, but he was too tired. Frakowski had called him around midnight, likely just minutes before the killers arrived, to try to talk him into coming over. Now he showed me a large manila envelope full of old ephemera, including Frakowski's airline ticket to the United States, dated May 16, 1967, and a reference letter Polanski had written for him on Paramount Stationery. These artifacts seemed to transport Kazanowski. The 60s, he said, were often on his mind. I can close my eyes and I feel that it's still 1969. I hear people's voices. I see their faces, Kazanowski said. He was amazed at how the usual indicators of class and status had disappeared in Hollywood at the time, where the most extreme ugliness with total purity was mixed up. This blurriness was the inevitable outcome of the open-door policy they'd all subscribed to at the end of the decade. Totally primitive, uneducated people could dress and act like visionary artists. And you couldn't know absolutely who was who. You could have a Manson, and you could have a great poet, and it was impossible to make a distinction. Accordingly, Kazanowski remembered so many strange people coming and going from the house on Cielo Drive, where he would sometimes stay with Frakowski for days at a stretch. I didn't trust them, he said of the guests. They walked so freely through the place. He would ask Frakowski who these people were, and the answer always came with degrees of removal. They were friends of this guy, or friends of friends of so-and-so. That was why, after the murders, he felt he'd gotten a bead on who the killers were. The same set of drug dealers that Bugliosi mentions passingly in Helter Skelter. I remember Wojtek telling me that they threw Pick Dawson out of a party, he said, taking a sip of wine. They told Pick Dawson to take his backpack and fuck off. Kazanowski remembered another party, a few weeks before the murders, where he'd had to kick out two very drunk guys. At the gate, they were standing on the other side, looking at Wojtek and me, and they said, you sons of bitches, we will be back and we will kill you. All the months of partying with Frakowski had a cumulative effect. 
He met so many threatening characters that when his friend turned up dead, he was convinced one or more of them was to blame. He'd wondered if Frakowski, or even Polanski or Sebring, had ever encountered Manson or his followers. His concern and uncertainty still felt raw. Here was someone who'd been so close to the victims that he'd held on to their possessions for all these years. And he still couldn't rule out the possibility of a revenge motive. As I sat across from him, the elaborate puffery of the helter-skelter motive and all the panicked headlines that came with it seemed to recede into the afternoon smog. If Frykowski were alive, I ventured, and Kazanowski could ask him one question, what would it be? Looking down into his wine, he said quietly, did you ever meet anybody from the group of people who came to kill you? He who dies with the most toys wins. Having finished what would be her final film, The Thirteen Chairs, also known as Twelve Plus One, Sharon Tate came back to the Cielo house in July 1969, more than seven months pregnant. She wanted to have her baby in the house she loved. But Polanski, who was supposed to have returned by then, deferred his homecoming. He needed to continue scouting locations for his next film. Assuring her that he'd be back in time for the baby's arrival, he asked his old friend Frakowski to stick around with Folger and keep Tate company. That at least is the version Bugliosi provides. Once I'd heard from him about Polanski's tape and the seedier side of Cielo, I started pushing harder in my interviews, and diverging stories developed. Polanski's intimates said that Tate was grateful for the company. She didn't want to be alone in the secluded estate, especially at the end of her pregnancy. As for Polanski himself, his friends described him as careful, conservative, even square, and deeply in love with his wife. If he said he had to stay on in London for work, then that's what he was doing. Others remembered it differently. Tate had been horrified at the scene that greeted her upon her return to Los Angeles. She was leery of Folger and especially of Frakowski, whom she suspected of drug dealing. She wanted the couple and the crowd attached to them out of her house. As I won the confidence of some of her closest friends, they came out with intensely disturbing stories. Her marriage was in shambles, they said, and many of them didn't want her to fix it. They wanted her to leave it. Polanski had established a pattern of abuse, emotional and physical. The Sharon Tate they knew, warm and vivacious, was diminished in his presence. The difference in Sharon was incredible, said Elke Sommer, the German actress who appeared with her in The Wrecking Crew. She just wasn't herself when she was with him. She was in awe, or frightened. He had an awesome charisma. That meant that Polanski could walk all over her. One friend, who called him one of the most evil people I ever met, said that he had smashed Tate's face into a mirror and on another occasion, forced her to watch a recording of him having sex with another woman. 
He cheated on her constantly, and he made sure she knew about it. Another friend remembered an incident in which Polanski had asked his wife to wear the same dress that one of his other lovers had worn. When she appeared in her own dress instead, he threw her into the pool in front of their friends. Others said that Polanski hosted orgies at the house without his wife's knowledge or consent. Dominic Dunn, who'd been close to Tate, Polanski, and Jay Sebring, was confident on that point. I never went to their orgies, but I know they existed, and I think Jay was in on it too, he said to me. The director, James Toback, who would himself be disgraced nearly 20 years later by more than 200 allegations of sexual assaults, was even more certain. One night, Warren Beatty had invited him to a party at the Tate House. Toback brought Jim Brown, a football all-star who'd become an action film hero. At the party, people began to whisper about an orgy. I was going to be included because I was with Jim, Toback told me. And I was certainly up for it. But Jim declined. And yet. James Toback is full of shit and always has been. Paul Silbert, a production designer and a friend of Polanski, told me. Nothing crazy went on up there. There were no orgies. Not that I ever have been to, and I was up there frequently. He conceded that Polanski was peculiar, but whatever his kinkiness was, it was on a small scale and quite private. He might have been hinting at orgies, but there were never any. Orgies or no, at a certain point, Tate felt that she'd suffered enough. As the humiliations accumulated, she approached Elkie Summer for her advice. Summer remembered telling her, I'd take the next heavy object, whether it's an iron or a frying pan or a spade out in the yard, and I'd just brain him. Tate wasn't about to do that, but she did, on a few occasions, warm to the idea of leaving Polanski. Summer thought she was always too much in her husband's thrall to follow through. There was a tremendous sickness when I worked with Sharon, Summer said. A horrendous sickness surrounding her relationship. She was quite lost. A number of Tate's friends were quick to mention the undesirable company she kept, with Frikowski and Folger at the top of the list. Tate couldn't stand them, said Joanna Pettit, another actress who'd become close to her. The two had had lunch together at the house on the day of the murders. Pettit was surprised to see Frakowski and Folger, whom she'd never met before, walking around like they owned the place. I asked, who are these people? Why are they here? She said Roman didn't want me to be alone. Tate tolerated the pair only because her husband insisted on it. On the phone with Polanski, so depressed that she fell into tears, she complained that the two had brought too many drugs into the house, too much chaos. But Polanski refused to turn them out. She asked constantly when he would come home, but he kept postponing his return trip. Moreover, she'd tried to stay with him in London, and he wouldn't let her. He didn't want her there. I'd gone to great lengths to track down Pettit, who had quit the movie business in the 90s. She lived in the high desert beyond Palm Springs, 
where she was something of a recluse, with no phone. It had dawned on me that I might be able to reach her through the Screen Actors Guild. They would have her address on file since they were responsible for mailing her residual checks. Through them, I sent her a long letter, and she agreed to meet me for a lunch at a strip mall near her house. She was slightly apprehensive when she first arrived. Then, 57, she cut a striking figure, dressed head to toe in denim, with dark glasses that obscured her piercing eyes, until she felt comfortable enough to remove them. I lost it when Sharon was killed, she said. I had to be hospitalized and missed the funeral. She made no attempt to conceal her contempt for Polanski. I hated him, she said flatly. As others had, Pettit described a marriage in which he exuded an almost casual cruelty toward his wife. For four months, in the summer of 67, Pettit had stayed with the couple at a rented beach house. And she began to notice how often Polanski bossed Tate around. He had a malicious streak. Sometimes it reached Pettit herself. He would throw a brick in the pool and watch my dog dive for it and try to retrieve it. He stood there laughing. The dog wouldn't give up. After Sharon's funeral, Polanski called Pettit. On the phone, he was strange with me, cold as ice. There was no despair, and I was sobbing. He wanted to know what she'd told the police. It made her wonder what was behind her friend's murder. At the time, I suspected it was maybe friends of his who did it. All I know is he never came when she asked him to come back, and she was here. Figuring that Polanski's confidants would want to tell a different story, I coaxed Bill Tennant, his manager, into talking to me. Tennant had never given an interview about the murders, in part because the events of 1969 had sent his life into a tailspin. He'd had the somber task of identifying the bodies at the Tate House. A 1993 piece in Variety by Peter Bart, as coincidence would have it, described Tennant's fall from grace. Through the 60s and 70s, he'd found great success in Hollywood, discovering the script for Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid and agenting Peter Fonda's deal for Easy Rider. But Bart had found him a gaunt, battered figure, sleeping in a doorway on Ventura Boulevard. A cocaine addiction had done away with his marriage and his money, leading him to trade even the gold inlays in his teeth for a fix. In Bart's assessment, the shock of the Manson murders began unraveling him. I tracked down Tennant in London, where he was sober, remarried, and managing Michael Flatley, the lord of the dance. He'd become a born-again Christian, but he displayed little compassion or forgiveness for Polanski, his one-time client and friend. Roman is a shit, he said. Echoing what I'd heard from other friends of the couple, Tennant said there were two versions of their story. Which one do you want to tell? On one hand, Polanski had fallen into dissolution in London, where he was working on a movie and sleeping around while back in California, his pregnant wife was putting together a home. Tate wound up getting murdered because he was fucking around in London, he said. 
but that was just one side of it. The other story is sitting in the Bel Air Hotel with Roman after the funerals and having to address his financial situation, which was not very good, Tennant said. And Roman looking across the table at me and saying, I wish I had spent more. I wish I had bought more dresses. I wish I had given more gifts. So what story do you want to tell? The one about this little prick who left his wife alone with Jay Sebring and Gibby Folger and Wojtek, these wankers, these four tragic losers? Or do you want to talk about a poor kid, Roman Polanski? Tennant resisted the idea that the murders represented a loss of innocence for Hollywood. There was nothing innocent about it, he said. It was retribution. The big value in Los Angeles when he was there, Tennant said, was this. He who dies with the most toys wins. I think it's pretty self-serving to call that period and what was going on innocent. What's innocent about drugs? What's innocent about promiscuous sex? You tell me where the innocence was. Within a week of the murders, Polanski was partying it up with Warren Beatty, he added. The brutal reality was that nobody cared or gave a shit about Sharon Tate. Not because they weren't nice, but because she was expendable. As expendable as an actor whose option comes up and gets dropped. After his wife's murder, Polanski stayed on the Paramount Studios lot as much as he could. It was the only place he felt safe. And not just from the killers or the media, from the LAPD. You found the police surveillance units, and you found that the police in Los Angeles knew everything about everybody. Tennant said that there was a kind of FBI-slash-CIA aspect of the Los Angeles Police Department, and that they knew everything there was to know. Although he had no way of knowing it in 1969, Tennant wasn't being paranoid when he wondered how the LAPD knew so much about his friends. Many law enforcement agencies, including the LAPD, the Los Angeles County's Sheriff's Office, and the FBI, had maintained units to surveil and even infiltrate groups that they considered subversive or threatening. At this stage, I wasn't inclined to view law enforcement with anything approaching suspicion. Even so, I was beginning to see the official version of the case with a jaundiced eye. In California, everybody has a tan. I found it difficult to sort through the stories coming out of the house on Cielo Drive. Picture a spider web so dense with connections and tendrils that it looks like a solid sheet of fabric. That's what I felt I was working with. The Hollywood cliques that had seemed at the start so discreet and isolated were all mixed up with one another, much more than Bugliosi had made it appear. Plus, then and now, people weren't always willing to be upfront about who they hung out with. Tate was right to be wary of Frakowski, assuming she had been. He'd fallen in with a dangerous crowd. Many of the primitive people that Kazanowski met had extensive rap sheets, and their names kept coming up when people mentioned the gravest excesses of Cielo Drive. Pick Dawson, who'd threatened Frykowski's life and been thrown out of Polanski's party, 
had been the subject of Interpol surveillance for drug smuggling as early as 1965. The young son of a diplomat, he'd gained entree in the Polanski crowd through his friendship with Cass Elliott, one of the singers in the popular 60s group The Mamas and the Papas. Like most of the men in the troubled singer's life, he'd used her for her money and connections. Elliot's biographers would later write that her infamous 1966 London arrest, she'd been caught stealing hotel towels and keys, was actually a ruse to force her to share information about Dawson's drug smuggling operations. Dawson's colleagues in the drug business, Billy Doyle and Tom Harrigan, also wormed their way into Polanski's circle through Mama Cass. According to police reports, Dawson, Doyle, and Harrigan all 27, and all romantically involved with Elliot, were joined by a fourth partner, Uncle Charles Tacot, a New Yorker who was more than a decade older. A former Marine, the six-foot-six strongman was renowned for his prowess with knives. He was rumored to have maintained ties to military intelligence, and he'd been selling drugs in Los Angeles since his arrival around 1950. Curiously, despite their many years of drug peddling and several drug arrests among them, only Doyle had ever been convicted of any crime. And his conviction was later overturned and changed to an acquittal on his record. Like Charles Manson, the four men seemed to have little fear of law enforcement. Helter Skelter paid only passing attention to these guys. They were among the few figures in the book who were given pseudonyms. Although Bugliosi noted Pick Dawson's death threat against Frakowski, he omitted an even more disturbing incident, one that makes a revenge motive much more plausible, and that reveals the extent to which the victims were mixed up in the seamier side of the counterculture. As the story goes, at some point in the months before the murders, the residents of Cielo threw one of their endless parties with Frakowski and Sebring leading the charge. Billy Doyle showed up and, in the spirit of the times, drank, smoked, and snorted himself to unconsciousness. Frakowski and Sebring, and maybe Witold Kasanowski, too, wanted to get even with Doyle for something. Some say he'd sold them bad drugs. So, before a crowd of onlookers, they lowered Doyle's pants, flogged him, and anally raped him. This has become the kind of apocrypha that Manson conspiracy theorists can't get enough of. It's the same incident referenced in Barney Hoskins's Waiting for the Sun, the book I showed Bugliosi that day after our lunch. The story feels almost mythological in its ugliness and in the extent to which its most basic details who, what, when, where, why, are in flux. Candace Bergen, in an interview with the LAPD a few weeks after the murders, said that it was a rape, most likely at Sebring's place or at his friend John Phillips's, also of the Mamas and the Papas. Dennis Hopper told the Los Angeles Free Press that it was at the Cielo House. He described it as, a mass whipping of a dealer from Sunset Strip who'd given them bad dope. Ed Sanders in The Family reports that Doyle was whipped and video buggered 
and the location varies depending on which edition of the book you're looking at. So what really happened? I hesitated to report on this in 1999. It felt like another lurid departure from Manson. And it's not as if my deadline afforded me time to explore every strange byway. But it bothered me that Bugliosi had left this out, and that so many people close to the victims regarded it as a flashpoint in the case. It was another instance of the resilience of the live-freaky-die-freaky mindset. Plus, even if Pick Dawson, Billy Doyle, and the other dealers hadn't murdered anyone, they could still be behind the crimes or adjacent to them. If I could connect them to Manson, for instance, couldn't they have contracted him for the murders? And if they were selling a lot of drugs to anyone who died at the Tate household, might there have been some kind of cover-up at work? So, down I went. Thanks to Kasanowski and a few others who spoke with the LAPD, detectives were quickly suspicious of Doyle and his companions after the murders. And Doyle himself was getting around quite a bit at the time. He was back and forth between Los Angeles, Jamaica, and his native Toronto. It was in this last city that police caught up to him in late August. I wouldn't get a transcript of the LAPD's interview until many years into my investigation, but it's worth including here because it gives his side of the story. And Doyle is quotable. There's something almost farcically hard-boiled about him. In short, he told the LAPD's Lieutenant Earl Deemer that he didn't remember being raped, but he couldn't be sure. It might have happened anyway. He recalled going over to see Frakowski at the Cielo house on the night in question, sometime in early July. Frakowski, thinking it would be a funny prank, slipped some mescaline in his champagne. Folger and Kasanowski were there too. It was out at the swimming pool, Doyle told Deemer, and there was two cases of champagne by the pool, and apparently Frakowski put some in my drink, and I said, Jesus, I am high. I am really out of my bird. He wanted something to bring him down, and Frakowski was happy to oblige, producing some pills that he said belonged to Sharon Tate. Doyle swallowed about eight of them, and soon enough, as Frakowski started to laugh at him, he realized that the pills were something else entirely, and that he was dealing with some wild people. They were crazier than hell. I didn't realize they were so crazy. I am using the word crazy. I mean, drug-induced crazy. In California, everybody has a tan. Now, if people don't have a tan, they look a little different. You can see things in their faces that a tan covers up. They were all tan and looked healthy. They looked very straight to me when I first got there. And, uh, I don't remember much more than that. His observation about California, where everybody has a tan, reminded me of Kasanowski's remark. It was impossible back then to separate geniuses from charlatans. Everyone blended in. Of course, by most reckonings, Doyle himself would count as one of the charlatans. He admitted that he was a naturally paranoid person. In recent months, he developed a coke habit. 
which only exacerbated the paranoia. Convinced that someone, somewhere, was out to get him, he started carrying a gun. It didn't help that he often bragged about how much cocaine he had, especially when there were women around. They all wanted to get laid, he said to Deemer, and the price of admission was a nose full of coke, and I learned that. He would show up at parties with a silver coke spoon and tell everyone he had pounds of it. His good friend Charles Tacot said, For Christ's sakes, Billy, what do you tell people that kind of stuff for? And I said, I want to get laid, Charles. That day, higher and higher on drugs that he couldn't even name, Doyle became convinced that Frakowski meant to harm him. So he pulled out his gun and pointed it at the pole, threatening to kill him. Frakowski, the bigger man, and the more sober, too, if only by a hair, wrested the gun from him. Here, Doyle's memory got hazy. He apparently lapsed into unconsciousness, and Wojtek called up Charlie Ticot, asking him to come collect his deranged friend. It was possible, Doyle conceded, that Frakowski or Kasanowski had raped him after that. He admitted that he might have told his friend Mama Cass something to that effect. I was unconscious, he told Deemer. I wasn't sore the next day, not there, but I was sore everywhere else. In another LAPD officer's account of that interview, Doyle puts it even more frankly. I was so freaked out on drugs I wouldn't know if they fucked me or not. It took a lot of asking around, but eventually I tracked down both Billy Doyle and Charles Tacot. As for the other two, I'd learned Dawson had died of a drug overdose in 1986, and Harrigan was nowhere to be found. Neither had given an interview before, and though they could be cagey, they were also eager to relive their underworld glories. Both were old men now, but they were still operators who acted as if they were at the height of their criminal powers. Impressively foul-mouthed, both of them threatened to have me killed at various points in our interviews, although I didn't take either seriously. In our first phone call, Taco filled in some of the blanks from Doyle's story. He remembered driving over to pick up Doyle, who was passed out somewhere on the Cielo Drive property. His belt had been split, apparently with a knife. A friend who'd come along for the errand said, I think Wojtek fucked him. They took Doyle, still unconscious, to Mama Cass's place in the Hollywood Hills. Taco remembered thinking, if we don't take care of him, he's going to go back there and have a beef. I carried him out, laid him by a tree, went back to my car and got about 20 feet of welded link chain, which I had in there for somebody else originally. I put it around his ankle and a tree with a good padlock and snapped it all together. So I know he's not going anywhere. Cass was in the hospital at the time. She said, get the Polaroid, get the Polaroid. Doyle came to a few hours later, still very high and simmering with rage. I'm going to shoot that motherfucker, Taco remembered him saying. And I said, no, no, we're leaving town. We're going to Jamaica. But first, you're going to get sober and you're going to be on this fucking tree until you are. I asked Taco, 
Do you think Wojtek did fuck Billy? Yeah, that's why Billy was so pissed at him, Teko said. Wojtek would have been killed if I hadn't intervened. Would Billy have hired killers, I asked, thinking of Manson. No. He would have taken all the pleasure himself. In his interview with the police, Doyle had allowed that he was furious at Frykowski and his set. When I was chained to the tree, he said, they were the object of my rage, which was an unreasonable and unnatural rage. To calm him down, Doyle said, Taco had chained a sign to the tree that said, you are loved. Doyle was stuck there for more than a day. After that, Taco told me, the pair headed off to Jamaica, where apparently they were making a movie about marijuana. No footage from this film has ever surfaced. Others have said the two were involved in a large narcotics deal. On August 9, while they were away, Manson goes up and kills those people and everyone's looking for Doyle, Taco said. He and Doyle were suspects within days. I picked up the phone one day and the Toronto Star informed me that me and Billy were in the headlines. Two wanted for murder. A couple of days later, back in the United States, I took a lie detector test, Taco told me. They knew I had nothing to do with it. Billy too. He was in Jamaica with me. We were cleared out of the country. You can't kill somebody long distance. True enough, but you could arrange for someone else to do the killing. Taco adamantly denied that he and Billy Doyle knew Manson. They'd never even met the guy. Nor, he said, had they sold drugs to anyone staying at the Tate house. We were consultants, he said. We'd tell them if it was okay or not. If the drugs were okay? Yeah, he added. Billy was fucking a whole bunch of broads up there. Did you ever hear about any orgies, I asked? If you want to consider Billy fucking the broads an orgy. Charlie Teco wasn't exactly the picture of virtue. I wanted to find other people who'd known him, who could say if he'd known Manson. It wasn't hard. Seemingly everyone in town had partied with Teco at some point. Corinne Calvé? A French actress who'd worked in Hollywood since the 40s had one of the most alarming stories of them all. Calvay was as famous for her turbulent life as her film roles. She'd starred opposite James Cagney in What Price Glory. In the 50s, she married Johnny Fontaine, a mobster-turned-actor who'd been a pallbearer at the gangster Mickey Cohen's funeral. A purported Satanist, she'd been sued in 1967 by a longtime lover who accused her of controlling him with voodoo. I met Calvé at her beach-facing apartment in Santa Monica. Solemn and unsmiling, in heavy makeup, her gray hair swept back. She got right to the point. The only thing I can tell you about this Manson, she said, her accent inflecting the words with glamour and gravity is that Charlie Teco brought him and the girls to a party at our house. Two hours after they were there, I caught Charlie Manson taking a piss in my pool. I told Charlie Teco to get them out of here and they left. After the tragedy happened, the FBI came by and told me I was next on their list to be killed. When I expressed shock at this, her eyes narrowed. With genuine malice, she said, maybe you are new at this. 
When I tell you something, don't question it. I don't say it unless it is true. I explained that Tico had denied ever having met Manson or anyone in the family. Maybe he has good reason to say that, Calve said, letting her words hang in the air. She was certain. Charlie knew them. I pressed her again. Was she sure that Tico brought Manson and the girls to her party? Well, I would not put my hand in the fire, saying that Charlie brought them over, but Charlie knew them. I tried to get more out of Calve, but the rest of the interview was frosty. When I asked her for specific dates, or even years, she grew exasperated, throwing her hands up in disgust. I do not know years, do not ask me. Before long, she'd had it with me altogether. I want you to leave now, she said, and I did. Thinking I could eventually get Tico to let his guard down, I began to visit him at the Santa Anita Convalescence Center in Temple City. His health was failing, and he had trouble walking. I found him lying in bed naked, a sheet pulled just above his groin. He was bald, with a silver mustache, bony arms, and a gravelly voice. I noticed a fading tattoo on his forearm. On the wall, he'd hung a photo of his granddaughter at her senior prom. Later, when he rose to get exercise using a walker, I saw how tall he was, six foot six and rail thin. Although his faculties were waning, he was sharp. He still commanded enough authority to boss around the short orderly who assisted him. Tako shared his room with another patient, and he seemed to resent the enfeebling atmosphere of the place. Too much groaning around here, he said. So I offered to drive him to his favorite restaurant, Coco's, a California chain known for its pies. Taking him out to lunch was an elaborate procedure. People from the rest home wheeled him out to my car, lifted him in, and put the wheelchair in the trunk. Once we were at Coco's, however, I had to lift Tico into the wheelchair myself. An intimate maneuver for two near strangers. Humiliated, he began to threaten me, albeit ineffectually. Do you realize who you're dealing with, he rasped, as I attempted to hoist him out of my passenger seat. I could have you hurt or killed. In Coco's, with food in front of him, he calmed down a bit. And soon we were having a freewheeling, if combative, conversation about the murders and Hollywood in the 60s. Tico had lived in Los Angeles since 1949 or 50, when he moved there from Mexico with his wife. He had two daughters, one of whom, Margot, would later confirm a lot of her father's story. He was a drug dealer, she said, who operated on the fringes of the music and acting world. Although he would often get arrested, she said, nothing ever stuck. Someone always took care of it for him. Tako continued to deny ever having known Manson, and he bridled at the insinuation that he had anything to do with the crimes. The Tate murders, he went on, led to the most fucked up investigation I've ever seen in my life. He had sued the Los Angeles Times for announcing him as a suspect. Any effort to implicate him, he said, was probably just the LAPD covering up for their bad police work. 
As he grew more comfortable, Taco made an unexpected revelation. At the time of the murders, he worked for an intelligence agency. He wouldn't say which. And reported to Hank Fine, a veteran of the Army's Military Intelligence Service, MIS. This had been a World War II-era operation so secret that it wasn't even acknowledged by the federal government until 1972. Fine, a Polish emigre, whose true name was Hirsch Matthias Warszawski, was an assassin who shot people for the government, Teko claimed. Thinking the old guy was fantasizing, I barely followed up on the revelation. But he, and later Billy Doyle, would often reference Fine, only to refuse to answer any questions about him. When I looked into him, I learned neither man had been lying. Teko also described his friend Doyle, they were still close, as a dangerous man. He'd kill you in a fucking minute. Both of us are second-generation intelligence. Don't write this stuff, he implored me. You'll get killed. These are very dangerous men. They'll find you and kill you. That was a warning I'd hear a lot from various parties over the years. Teco reminded me that Bugliosi, when he wrote Helter Skelter, had given pseudonyms to him and his friends. And not just for the sake of politeness. He was afraid American intelligence would kill him if he exposed us, Teco claimed. He added that Bugliosi was an asshole who'd never interviewed him or Billy. Vincent Bugliosi knows to keep his mouth shut. I'd have got him killed. I didn't tell him that. Didn't have to. I tried to get Teco on the subject of Frakowski, who was, to my mind, the victim with the shadiest cast of characters around him. Frakowski was on drugs all the time, Teco said. Contradicting what he'd told me on the phone, he said that Frakowski had sold MDA, but only to close friends. I didn't take Teco out again, but I kept calling and visiting him. I found him evasive, or senile, or a little of both. And the more I asked around about him, the more he seemed to vanish into the mist of the 60s. Some people told me, with certainty, that Teco had been an assassin for the CIA, that he was a gun freak and an incredible marksman. In his 2006 autobiography, Since Then, How I Survived Everything and Lived to Tell About It, the musician David Crosby identified Teco as a soldier of fortune who taught him how to shoot a gun. Others said that he was an ex-Marine who'd served in Korea and used to show off his impressive knife-throwing skills. I heard that he grew pot in Arizona, that he was a child molester, that he was a coke smuggler, that he was an uncredited screenwriter, and that his intelligence ties were all fictitious. And the strange thing was, none of this was entirely implausible. About the only thing everyone could agree on was that Teco had been involved in a lot of schemes, that he'd been a drug dealer and even more a drug user. But then, as one source put it, hey man, aren't you? When I looked into Hank Fine, the MIS guy Teco had said he'd reported to, I learned that, like everything Teco said, there was at least a kernel of truth to it. Fine, 
who'd been a movie PR man from the 1940s until his death in 1975, had been in the Office of Strategic Services, OSS, the counterintelligence agency that oversaw the MIS and evolved into the CIA after World War II. His work often seemed to combine Hollywood and spycraft. Eddie Albert, the star of the 60s sitcom Green Acres, told me that Fine had sent him on undercover missions to Mexico during the war. From his sailboat, the actor had photographed German landing sites and military training grounds. Though I found no proof, the consensus among Fine's associates was that he'd continued working in espionage operations through the 60s. His only child, Shayla, told me that his public relations gig was a cover. And yes, she said, Teco had reported to her father. What kind of work were they doing? She never knew, except that it was classified. Whenever I saw Teco, I returned to the subject of fine. Don't mention that name anywhere, he barked, seeming genuinely disturbed. When I asked why not, he said, none of your fucking business. You're fucking with the wrong people. Or was I fucking with lowlifes who only wanted to present an illusion of importance? I really couldn't say. And when I finally was able to talk to Billy Doyle, things didn't get any clearer. Taco gave me Doyle's number. He's a retired old man just like me, he said. And he may not want to talk too much. Don't push him if he doesn't. But Doyle liked an audience just as he had in 1969. I called him often at his home in Toronto, and he talked for hours, sometimes rambling at such length that I would turn off my recorder to save tape. Just when he was trying my patience, he'd say something provocative and I'd have to switch the recorder back on and try to get him to repeat it. He had a short temper, and when he exploded, usually out of nowhere, it could be hard to calm him down. One time, when he didn't like my line of questioning, he told me, I was shooting targets at a thousand yards yesterday, implying that I could soon be one of them. Another time, when I tried to get some specifics about Hank Fine, Doyle yelled, Go in the bathroom, swallow the gun, and pull the trigger. When he wasn't angry, he sometimes got a kick out of teasing me. He would make a major revelation and then retract it the next time we spoke. I got the sense that he sometimes trusted me enough to tell the truth, only to realize later that he shouldn't have done that. Doyle believed that Polanski and Frakowski were Polish spies, the former subverting American democracy with his decadent films. He was sure that Polanski had something to do with the killings. It went both ways. I'd heard that Polanski thought Doyle had something to do with the killings. He denied that he'd ever been a drug dealer. I read him passages from the police report in which he'd confessed to, even bragged about, having vast amounts of cocaine. But even after that, he denied it to me. He wouldn't be stupid enough to carry two pounds of coke on a plane, he said. When I asked him about MDA the drug that he and Wojtek had allegedly bought in large quantities. He said he'd never even heard of it. He relented when I read him some quotes from the transcript. Okay, fine, he'd taken it, 
I brought up his and Tico's alibi for the night of the murders. They'd been in Jamaica, you'll recall, filming a pot movie. Doyle admitted that the movie was a ruse. He and Tico had really been doing intelligence work there, he said, as part of some effort to keep Cuba out of Jamaica. Dead white men will pull your tongue out if you tell this shit, he said. You have to understand that the government doesn't want to have any exposure on the Jamaican thing. There never was a Jamaican thing. They don't want to know about it. When I asked why, he said, how the fuck do I know? I'm a Canadian citizen. I went with Charles on an adventure. I thought we were going to do a movie. But that's not what you were really there for, and you knew it. That's right. It's an exchange that illustrates how cryptic Doyle could be, and how he reveled in it. I had to ask about the story behind his alleged rape. He said that never happened either. Charles was spreading the rape story to have fun at my expense, he explained. Even my mom and dad asked if I was raped. And yet, he betrayed the same uncertainty he'd shown to the cops so many decades ago, telling me that he'd had a friend take photos of him naked so he could examine his rear end. Similarly, he told me that Corinne Calvé was dead wrong when she said that Taco had brought Manson to her house. That's a lie, he said, noting that Taco and Calvé had once dated. She will say anything to grasp at stardom. Men with badges and guns have raised these questions before, he added. Not police, FBI, sitting in D.C. That in itself was astonishing to me. I hadn't heard that the FBI had investigated the murders, but I would later find out that it was true. I suggested that I didn't believe him about Calvé. You are going to come to a horrible truth, he said. Be nervous that you may have discovered the truth, and you won't like it. As spurious and slimy as he could be, I found him believable when he repeated that there was more to the murders than had been reported. Later, when I'd interviewed so many people that some of them had started to compare notes, he said something really impenetrable. The community has looked at this as a settled thing until you started talking to us. What community? I asked. Who? The ties that bind. Eventually, Doyle became convinced that I was Roman Polanski's private investigator. It was never clear to me how much he actually believed this, but it was enough to make me back away from him. I sunk a lot of hours into cultivating sources like Taco, Doyle, and the crowd surrounding them. They'd been so close to the Tate murders that they were suspects. And yet they'd assumed no role in the mythology surrounding the events of August 9. Bugliosi, like the LAPD, had summarily acquitted them of any involvement in the killings. They were his book's classic red herring. But I still wasn't convinced. In their sleazy, run-of-the-mill criminality, their motivations seemed much more viable than a lofty idea like Helter Skelter. The more I talked to them, the more I recognized certain inadequacies in Bugliosi's story, which had curtailed so many explanations in favor of the most outlandish one. A haircut from Little Joe.
I wanted to keep one eye open to the possibility that Teco, Doyle, and their associates had some link to the Manson Group. After all, in The Family, Ed Sanders had written that it was likely that Mama Cass Elliot knew Manson through her drug connections. It seemed probable that Doyle and Teco were pivotal there. Plus, Elliot had been friends with Frakowski and Folger, and Elliot's bandmates were close to Polanski and Tate. In other words, everyone knew everyone else, and nobody wanted to talk about it anymore. Maybe I could suss out the connections there, but I was less enthusiastic about these supposed ties with intelligence agencies, except that I was about to get another push in that direction. Dominic Dunn, the Vanity Fair journalist who'd been friends with Tate, Polanski, and Jay Sebring, had given me a tip. Get a haircut from a man named Joe Torrenueva. Nicknamed Little Joe, Torrenueva had been 18, fresh out of barber school, when Jay Sebring took him under his wing as an apprentice hairstylist. That was in 1961. Sebring, not yet 30, was already one of the biggest names in fashion, having revolutionized men's grooming. He was the first to style men's hair rather than simply cut it. He patented a Sebring method through which your hair is shaped and conditioned to stay natural between visits, as promotional materials explained, and he introduced a line of hair care products. Sebring wasn't his given name. He was born Thomas Kilmer and renamed himself after a racetrack in Florida he liked. Sebring saw his clients in a private room with only one chair, when Torrenueva began working for him, he was charging an unheard of $25 for a haircut. The going rate was a buck fifty. But his customers were happy to pay a premium, and in turn he catered to their whims. Sebring traveled every few weeks to Las Vegas, where his clients included Frank Sinatra and several casino owners. Torrenueva always went with him. And in those quiet rooms, as the scissors snipped and tufts of hair gathered on the floor, he saw the casual intimacy between Sebring and his clients, who confided in him even when little Joe was within earshot. Now, like his mentor, to whom he referred in hushed, almost reverential tones, little Joe was a barber to the stars. He saw his clients in a private, oak-paneled room in Beverly Hills. His price was a hundred bucks. Dunn had told me that if I bided my time and didn't press him too hard, Joe might open up about the murders. When I showed up, he seemed unaware of my ulterior motive. Slight and soft-spoken, he sighed and paused before nearly every sentence. Joe was convinced that Sebring's murder had to do with something more than hippies trying to ignite a race war. Sebring, he told me, had been involved with mob guys from Chicago and Las Vegas. He cut their hair, partied with them in Vegas. Then, after the murders, little Joe got a call from General Charlie Barron, a casino executive and mobster who told him, Don't worry, little Joe. You're going to be all right. He presumed that the murders had been a drug deal gone wrong, and that Jay and Frakowski had been targeted. 
That was all I got. I needed more information. I'd have to get another haircut. I let a month go by, so I really needed one. And soon enough, I settled into Little Joe's leather chair again. Charlie Barron's call haunted him to this day. It came right after the murders, Torranueva said, before anyone had any notion of who'd committed them. You didn't do anything to anybody, he said, Barron told him. Nobody's going to do anything to you. The implication was that Barron and his associates were well aware of who committed the crimes, and why. But then Joe was done snipping. So I went back for a third haircut. Charlie Barron was very close to Jay, Joe told me in our third conversation. He added, Charlie killed people. When Barron was a young man during Prohibition in Chicago, he shot two guys who were going to kill him for fixing a fight. He later went to Havana to run casinos for Meyer Lansky, another mob figure. When he returned to the United States, he was Lansky's eyes and ears at the new Sands Casino in Vegas. Barron was hardly an outlier in Sebring's shop, which was a nest of mobsters and criminals, Torrenueva said. But it was Barron who scared Little Joe the most, even before his phone call. Despite Barron's known mob ties, he had some type of security intelligence clearance with the federal government. He always packed a gun, and he was close with a cabal of right-wing military intelligence and Hollywood figures, many of whom had been Sebring's clients. Little Joe alleged that they did terrible things to black people, and that it was Charlie who did the worst things. I couldn't get him to elaborate on that. But I did ask him why, if he was following the Tate murder investigation and knew that the police had no leads, he didn't tell the cops about his call from Barron. Because he was too close to higher-ups in law enforcement and intelligence, Joe said. He added yet another intriguing name to the list of Barron's associates. General Curtis E. LeMay a legendary fighter pilot who'd implemented the carpet bombing of Japan during World War II. A notorious hawk, LeMay had served as chief of staff of the U.S. Air Force under Presidents Kennedy and Johnson. In 1962, during the Cuban Missile Crisis, he'd tried to organize a coup against Kennedy among the Joint Chiefs of Staff. He wanted to force the military to flout the president's orders and bomb the Soviet missile bases they'd found in Cuba. It was a lot of names to process, and the implications were dizzying. I had one question that Torrenueva was especially reluctant to answer. Why would Sebring, at the time arguably the best-known men's hairstylist in the world, involve himself in crime? He had so much to lose, and clearly he was thriving. But he hadn't been, Torrenueva was pained to say. The deals kept falling through. He was a bad businessman. Do you think he sold drugs? I asked, aware that Frykowski had possibly been doing the same. It wouldn't surprise me. Sebring's problems had multiplied throughout the 60s. He'd clash with other barbers who wanted to unionize. In 1963, a group of his stylists had defected en masse to start their own business. 
At other times, he'd had to hire bodyguards because some guys had come into the shop and roughed up several employees, Torrenueva said, for reasons that were never shared with him. Sebring carried a gun. He shot someone once who came to his house and was giving his father a rough time at the door. The bottom line? Sebring, like Frakowski, had a lot more going on at the time of his murder than had ever been revealed. Whatever it was, little Joe thought it had more to do with his death than any hippie race war motive did. Which meant that in addition to drug dealers and Hollywood's seedier hangers-on, I had to account for mobsters, ex-military figures, and intelligence agents in my reporting. I was already worried about wandering into the weeds. Now I risked veering off the map entirely. Coda. Down the rabbit hole. I was writing a story about Charles Manson that had so far very little of Manson in it. It was more about the way that events, in all their messy reality, boiled down to canonical fact. The way that a narrative becomes the narrative. I had to decide if stories like Little Joe's, Charlie Tacos, and Billy Doyle's were worth looking into. And as a responsible journalist, if I was justified in dragging my magazine into it. It definitely meant asking for an extension from Premier and risking, in the final publication, looking like a fool. No matter how you viewed them, these were conspiracy theories. But I was riveted by the stuff I'd turned up that contravened the Manson story as we knew it. For better or worse, it felt like there was something covered up all these years, ripe for exposure. Maybe with the passage of time, people who knew about these things might divulge them at last. I was starting to figure out that Bugliosi had sifted so many stories out of Helter Skelter. To make his narrative about the conviction of the mad hippie guru and his zombie-like followers easier and cleaner. If that were merely an editorial choice, so be it. But if he'd changed things to protect people or to shore up holes in the investigation, then I felt justified in digging deeper. It seemed impossible that a story like Little Joe's, heavy with intelligence agencies and organized crime, could coexist alongside the helter-skelter motive. I knew that in the late 60s, intelligence agencies regarded dissident youth movements as the greatest threat to the nation's security, and they'd marshaled their efforts accordingly. Insofar as hippies, musicians, and movie stars played a role in those movements, I could see how the broadest outline of Little Joe's story could have some truth to it. But even a hardened national security reporter would have trouble verifying his claims. And that I was not. These were the concerns I faced by the summer of 1999. The obvious answer would be, keep pushing. The only problem was, my deadline was fast approaching. I owed Premier 5,000 words, and I'd written zero. Three, the golden penetrators, instilling fear. Maybe I was naive to think I could discover what was going on at the Tate House in the months before the murders. 
People had been trying to untangle that rat's nest of rumors for 30 years. And not with a magazine deadline looming in front of them. Now I'd determined to my satisfaction that Frakowski and Polanski had a lot to hide. And that their connections to the drug trade could have put them plausibly in Manson's orbit. Beyond that, my sense of Manson's link to Hollywood was still too tenuous for my liking. And if I felt that Bugliosi's helter-skelter motive was only a high-profile contrivance, I needed to find the bald truth it concealed. Hoping for a better angle, I focused on the one figure who was among the most perplexing in the case, Terry Melcher. Without Melcher, there would have been no murders at 10050 Cielo Drive. He was the clearest link between Manson and the Hollywood elite. A music industry bigwig, he'd promised Manson a record deal only to renege on it. The official story was that Manson, reeling from the rejection, wanted to instill fear in Melcher. So he chose Melcher's old house on Cielo Drive as the site for the first night of murders. He knew that Melcher didn't live there anymore. He just wanted to give the guy a good scare. This was a vital point in the case. According to Bugliosi, Manson never went to the house the night of the murders. He just sent his followers there and told them to kill anyone they found. To convict Manson of criminal conspiracy then, and get him a death sentence, Bugliosi had to establish a compelling, premeditated reason that Manson had picked the Cielo Drive home. Terry Melcher was that reason. Melcher testified that he'd met Manson exactly three times, the last of which was around May 20, 1969, more than two months before the murders. After Manson's arrest, Melcher became so frightened of the family that Bugliosi had to give him a tranquilizer to relax him before he testified. Ten, fifteen years after the murders, I'd speak to him, and he was still convinced that the Manson family was after him that night. Bugliosi had told me. If Manson had wanted to kill Melcher, he could have. He had Melcher's new address in Malibu. Greg Jacobson, a musician and a friend of the Beach Boys, had testified at the trial that Manson called him before the murders, asking him if Melcher had a green spyglass. Yes. Why? Jacobson answered. Well, he doesn't anymore, Manson said. The family had creepy-crawled Melcher's Malibu home. That's what they called it when they dressed up in black and sneaked around rich people's places and stolen the spyglass. When Melcher himself testified, he confirmed that he'd noticed it missing around late July or early August. Candace Bergen, his girlfriend, had noted the disappearance too. Over the years, Manson researchers have generally agreed that Melcher was stretching the truth. Karina Longworth, whose podcast, You Must Remember This, devoted a whole season to Manson, said in one episode that Melcher was vague about the details of his meetings with Manson and probably shaved a couple of visits to the ranch off the official record. It would be one thing to fudge the numbers a bit. It's easy to see why someone would want to understate their relationship with Charles Manson. But I became convinced that this was graver than that. I found proof that Melcher was much closer to Manson 
Tex Watson, and the girls than he'd suggested. A year before the murders, he'd even lived with a member of the family at the house on Cielo Drive. There was a strong likelihood that Melcher knew, immediately after the crimes, that Manson was involved. But he never told the police. I found evidence that Melcher lied on the stand, under oath. And Bugliosi definitely knew about it. Maybe he'd even put him up to it, suborning witness perjury. Just like the omissions about Polanski's sex tape and Frakowski's episode with Billy Doyle, this raised questions about Bugliosi's motives. Did he change the story to protect Melcher, a powerful record producer and the only child of one of Hollywood's most beloved stars? Had he streamlined certain elements for the jury's sake, in the interest of getting an easy conviction? Or was this part of a broader pattern of deception, of bending the facts to support a narrative that was otherwise too shaky to stand? Helter-skelter the motive and helter-skelter the book seemed more illusory by the day. Chasing the Melcher angle further imperiled any chance of hitting my deadline. It soured my relationship with Bugliosi. It brought on the first of many lawsuit threats and it turned my fascination with the case into a full-blown obsession. But it convinced me more than anything that I was onto something, that the full story behind the Manson murders had never been properly told. I live with 17 girls. The story of Manson and Melcher starts with Dennis Wilson. By the summer of 1968, Wilson, then 23, had reached an impasse. He'd become world famous as the drummer for the Beach Boys, helmed by his brother Brian. Now the band was in decline, edged out by more subversive acts. He and his wife Carol had recently divorced for the second time. She wrote in court filings that he had a violent temper, inflicting severe bodily injury on her during his rampages. The couple had two young children, but Dennis decided to rusticate as a bachelor. He moved into a lavish, Spanish-style mansion in Pacific Palisades, once a hunting lodge owned by the humorist Will Rogers. The home boasted 31 rooms and a swimming pool in the shape of California. He redecorated in the spirit of the times. Zebra print carpet, abundant bunk beds, and hosted decadent parties, hoping to have as much sex as possible. One day, Wilson was driving his custom red Ferrari down the Pacific Coast Highway when two hitchhikers, the families Ella Jo Bailey and Patricia Krenwinkel, caught his eye. He gave them a quick lift. When he saw them again soon afterward, he picked them up a second time, taking them back to his place for milk and cookies. History hasn't recorded what kind of cookies they enjoyed or whether those cookies were in fact sex, but whatever the case, the girls told Manson about the encounter. They weren't aware of Wilson's clout in the music industry, but Manson was, and he insisted on going back to the house with them. After a late recording session, Wilson returned to his estate to find the family's big black bus parked outside. His living room was populated with topless girls. Whatever alarm he felt was eased when their short, intense, unwashed leader, Manson, sunk to his knees and kissed Wilson's feet. 
This night ushered in a summer of ceaseless partying for Wilson. Manson and the family set up shop in his home. And soon Manson recruited one of the group's deadliest members, Tex Watson, who picked him up hitchhiking. The family spent their days smoking dope and listening to Charlie strum the guitar. The girls made the meals, did the laundry, and slept with the men on command. Manson prescribed sex seven times a day, before and after all three meals, and once in the middle of the night. It was as if we were kings, just because we were men, Watson later wrote. Soon, Wilson was bragging so much that he landed a headline in Record Mirror. I live with 17 girls. Talking to Britain's Rave magazine, Wilson offered disjointed remarks about his new friend, whom he called the Wizard. I was only frightened as a child because I didn't understand the fear, he said. Sometimes the Wizard frightens me. The wizard is Charles Manson, who is a friend of mine who thinks he is God and the devil. He sings, plays and writes poetry, and maybe another artist for Brother Records, the Beach Boys label. This last bit excited Manson, who was desperate to leverage his connection with Wilson into a music career. The two co-wrote a song, Cease to Exist, whose lyrics claimed that submission is a gift, Later that year, the Beach Boys recorded it as a B-side, changing the title, finessing the lyrics, and dropping Manson's songwriting credit, a snub that fueled his anger toward the establishment. Manson fraternized with some of the biggest names in music. Neil Young remembered meeting him and the girls at Wilson's place. A lot of pretty well-known musicians around L.A. knew Manson, Young later said though they'd probably deny it now. Among these was Terry Melcher. He and Wilson had pledged allegiance to the Golden Penetrators, a horny triumvirate they'd formed with their friend Greg Jacobson. The Penetrators, who'd painted a car gold to celebrate themselves, aimed to sleep with as many women as they could. Wilson's ex-wife referred to them as roving coxmen, Obviously, then, Melcher would want to rove over to Wilson's house. It was full of promiscuous young women. Sometime in that summer of 68, at one of Wilson's marathon parties, he crossed paths with Manson for the first time. After another such party, Melcher rode back to Cielo Drive with Wilson, and Manson came along in the back seat. As Melcher later testified, Manson got a good look at the house from the driveway. When the end of summer came, things went south with Wilson, who'd finally grown tired of footing the bill for the endless party. Upward of $100,000 in food, clothes, and car repairs, plus gonorrhea treatments. According to Bugliosi, Wilson was too frightened of Manson to throw him out. Instead, he simply up and left in the middle of the night leaving the messy business of eviction to his landlord. But it must have been more complicated than that. Wilson gave three interviews in which he raved about Manson and the girls. And all of those interviews date to the winter and summer of 1969, nearly a year after he and the family had supposedly parted ways. Why would Wilson brag about his connections to a man he'd just schemed to escape? 
The only sure fact is that Manson and his group decamped to the Spahn Ranch in late August 1968. Wilson moved into a Malibu beach house with Greg Jacobson, who'd also recently split from his marriage. Having drifted from Wilson, his best shot at a record deal, Manson knew he had to hitch his wagon to Terry Melcher's star. As his chances at fame dwindled, his mood darkened. He became obsessed with the Beatles' White Album, released in late November 1968, and started to preach about the prophecies of a race war embedded in its lyrics. Things only got worse in the winter of 69, when he arranged for Melcher to come out and hear his music. Manson prepared meticulously for the prospective meeting, but Melcher stood him up. On March 23, a desperate Manson went searching for Melcher, thinking he'd goad the producer into a record deal. He found his way back to the house at Cielo Drive, having remembered that Melcher lived there. Instead, Sharon Tate's personal photographer, Sharo Katami, intercepted him. Katami had never heard of a Terry Melcher. He told Manson to go to the guest house and ask the owner of the property, Rudolf Altabelli, who explained curtly that Melcher no longer lived there and hadn't left a forwarding address. Manson prevailed on Greg Jacobson, still a friend and still a fan of the girls, to book another session with Melcher. This time it worked. That May, Melcher made the winding drive to the Spahn Ranch and auditioned Manson in person, visiting twice over four days. Manson had rounded out a dozen or so of his best songs with backup singing from the girls. Performing in a gully in the woods, the girls sprawled on the ground and gazed up at their leader, who sat astride a rock with his guitar. I wasn't too impressed by the songs, Melcher would later testify. I was impressed by the whole scene, by Charlie's strength and his obvious leadership. As a courtesy, the producer complimented Manson, saying that one or two of his songs were nice. He had no intention of offering a recording contract, but he saw how the family's rustic, cultish lifestyle would lend itself to a TV documentary. Melcher suggested that his friend Mike Deasy, whose van was outfitted to make field recordings, could come out to the ranch and capture another performance. Before Melcher could get out of there, a foreman at the ranch came stumbling out of a pickup truck. Drunk and belligerent, he was dressed like a cowboy fingering a holstered gun, the same one that would later be used at the Tate murders. Manson stepped up to him and shouted, Don't draw on me, motherfucker, socking him in the gut, taking his gun, and continuing to pummel him. It spooked Melcher. Here was a peace and love cult with naked girls roaming the old western sets, and yet the constant threat of violence loomed over the place. It needed to be documented in all its oddity. A few days later, Melcher returned with Deasy and Jacobson, and the family repeated their audition. But what had seemed spontaneous now felt rehearsed. Deasy returned a few more times, until he had a frightening LSD trip with Manson and vowed never to go back. It was all getting too toxic. Melcher conveyed his rejection through Jacobson, and that was the end of that. 
Manson's last brush with greatness was gone, and he became full-on apocalyptic. Melcher never went back to the ranch or saw anyone from the family again. Or so he said under oath, anyway. After the murders, as Hollywood panicked and the LAPD chased down leads, the golden penetrators realized that they hadn't quite washed their hands of Manson. This is where their story began to feel unbelievable to me. Manson wasn't charged with murder until late November. But Wilson, Jacobson, and Melcher had good cause to suspect him back in August, right after the killings. By then, they were frightened of Manson, though Helter Skelter does little to indicate their terror. When I saw how much they knew, and how quiet they'd kept when their information would have helped police solve the case, I realized just how flimsy the Helter Skelter motive was. Its unforgettable grandiosity may have hidden a more prosaic truth, that a few rich guys had gotten in over their heads with an unstable ex-con. First, Wilson and Jacobson knew that Manson had shot a black man named Bernard Crow about five weeks before the Tate murders. And Jacobson, who testified that he'd talked to Manson upward of a hundred times, was well acquainted with his friend's bizarre race war predictions. Manson warned him that whiteys in the affluent homes of Bel Air would be cut up and dismembered, and that the murderers would smear the victim's blood on the walls, scatter their limbs, and hang them from the ceiling. And yet, when a group of affluent whites really was cut up, and Sharon Tate was hanged from the ceiling of her home in Bel Air, Jacobson apparently didn't make the connection. Nor did it occur to him in mid-August, when he witnessed Manson's violence firsthand. Manson broke into Jacobson's home in the middle of the night, shook him awake, and produced a bullet. Tell Dennis there are more where this came from, he said. On the witness stand, Jacobson compared Manson that night to a caged bobcat. The electricity was almost pouring out of him. His hair was on end. His eyes were wild. A few days earlier, Manson had shown up at Wilson's house, too, demanding $1,500. When Wilson refused to give him the money, Manson threatened him. Don't be surprised if you never see your kid again. After Manson's arrest, Wilson fell into a deep depression, spurring his problems with drugs and alcohol. Later, he told the Beach Boys' authorized biographer, David Leaf, I know why Charles Manson did what he did. Someday I'll tell the world. I'll write a book and explain why he did it. He never got the chance. In 1983, three weeks after his 39th birthday, an acutely drunk Wilson dove from the deck of his boat into the chilly waters of Marina del Rey and accidentally drowned. Within days, a rock journalist wrote in the San Francisco Chronicle about a jarring exchange he'd had with Wilson. Me and Charlie, we founded the family, Dennis had said. Apropos of nothing. The Golden Penetrators, then, had an abundance of reasons to accuse Manson of the Tate-LaBianca murders. Immediately. They believed he'd shot someone dead. He'd threatened two of them with violence. They knew he stockpiled guns and knives at the ranch. 
And the slaughter at Melcher's old house was exactly the kind he'd predicted, down to the most chilling detail. Shouldn't they have connected the dots? Was it possible that there was a conspiracy of silence among them? Asshole Buddies Rudy Altabelli, the owner of the house on Cielo Drive, Tate and Polanski's landlord, and Terry Melcher's before that, became one of my best sources. It was thanks to him that I started looking into Melcher's story in the first place. When I met up with Altabelli in the spring of 1999, he'd never publicly spoken about the murders that had occurred at his house, except in trial testimony. I wasn't sure why he'd agreed to talk now, and to me of all people. I'd heard it would be a waste of time even to bother asking. But Altabelli had always been unpredictable. One of the first openly gay men in Hollywood, he'd made a living as a manager, his clients including Henry Fonda and Catherine Hepburn. In November 1969, three months after the murders, before the killers had been found, he shocked the community by filing a lawsuit against Polanski and Sharon Tate's father to recover the damages his property had sustained during the murders. It was an appallingly callous response. To seek money from a victim's family because she'd bled on Altabelli's carpet as she lay dying. I knew then that I'd have to tread carefully with Altabelli. True to old Hollywood form, he suggested we meet at Musso and Frank Grill, a legendary outpost that looked right out of a film noir. Many of its red-jacketed waiters seemed so old that they could have been working there when it opened in 1919. One of them led me through the wood-paneled room past red banquettes to Altabelli at a corner table, already treating himself to the first in a succession of Gibsons with extra onions. Compact and natally dressed, he was a few weeks shy of his 70th birthday, but he had no lines on his face and no gray in his hair. Admittedly vain, he'd begin all our meetings by asking, how do I look? It came before hello. His glasses were always tinted, on some days blue, on others pink, orange, or light purple. After dinner that night, he kept calling to chat, and I took him out for years to come. The restaurants were always fancy. The bills were always mine. And I always felt, through hundreds of hours of conversation, that I wasn't getting the whole story. His go-to defense was unchanging. I may not tell you everything, but I have never lied to you. Robert Town who wrote the screenplay for Chinatown, called Altabelli the most honest man in Hollywood. A low bar to clear, maybe, but I'd take what I could get. If I printed anything without his permission, he said, I'll find you and cut your balls off and feed them to you. Fortunately, he later decided it was all on the record. Altabelli had bought the Cielo house in 1963. In May 1966, he rented to Terry Melcher, who was known at the time for having produced the birds Mr. Tambourine Man and Turn, Turn, Turn. Altabelli liked to befriend his tenants. He'd live in the guest house and rent out the main property. And soon the two became what he called asshole buddies. 
an affectionate term, he assured me. Not only was Altabelli one of the few people who'd befriended both Melcher and Tate, he was one of the few who'd seen Manson on the property before the murders. He provided critical testimony for the state, identifying Manson as the man who'd barged into his guest house looking for Terry Melcher on March 23, 1969. His ID was reliable. He'd already met Manson at Dennis Wilson's house the summer before. He'd sat on Dennis's bed atop a dirty satin sheet with cum spots on it, Rudy told me, while Manson sat on the floor playing music. I didn't like the vibe from him, Rudy added. I even told Terry to keep those people off the property. It sounded like Altabelli, and others in his circle, had suspected Manson from the start. And that was true, Altabelli said. When he heard about the murders, he thought of Manson right away. Altabelli was in Rome at the time, and his memories troubled him enough that within hours of the murders, before he'd even boarded a flight home, he called his lawyer Barry Hirsch, who told him he should mind his own business. Altabelli returned to Los Angeles hoping to move back into his house right away. The LAPD forbade him. Instead, he crashed with Melcher and Candace Bergen at their place in Malibu. That house belonged to Doris Day, Melcher's mother, but she seldom used it. During Altabelli's stay, Greg Jacobson stopped by and invited him for a walk on the beach. As they strolled along the surf, past beautiful oceanfront homes, fortified in recent weeks with fences, guard dogs, and security systems, Jacobson told him about the musician that Manson was supposed to have killed. Altabelli didn't remember the musician's name. I wondered if he was thinking of Gary Hinman, a musician who'd been killed by the family 13 days before the Tate-LaBianca murders. If Jacobson knew about that murder, he would have almost certainly connected the Tate-LaBianca deaths to Manson, too. That day on the beach, Jacobson reached into his pocket and pulled out a bullet. He said, this one's for Terry. It was from Manson. This strained credulity. As mentioned moments ago, during the trial, Jacobson had said that after the murders, Manson broke into his house, gave him a bullet, and told him to show it to Dennis Wilson. The message? There are more where this came from. Maybe Altabelli was getting all of it mixed up? But he was insistent. No, he said it was for Terry. Then why didn't he tell Terry about it? Because when I'm told to mind my own business by my attorney, I mind my own business. In fact, I should be minding my own business now and shut up. How could Altabelli have spent so much time with Melcher, doing nothing but discussing the tragedy and speculating on possible culprits, without sharing this crucial information, without telling his friend that there was a bullet with his name on it. He knew it would have helped solve the case. Altabelli did say that he called his attorney one more time to fill him in. He was told, again, to mind his own business. Hirsch declined to comment. If Altabelli was telling the truth, then all four of these men, him, Melcher, Wilson, and Jacobson, the main links between Manson, Hollywood, and the house on Cielo Drive had to know that Manson was behind the murders. 
and yet all they wanted to do was forget about it. Three weeks after the crimes, Altabelli moved back into the house on Cielo Drive, with Melcher as his new roommate, an arrangement that's never been reported before. Altabelli returned out of a desire to reclaim his home from the evil that had infested it. He hoped to restore some order to the place. By then, it had become a morbid mecca for Hollywood's elite, who came by wanting a glimpse at the scene of the crimes. Even Elvis Presley came to pay his respects. Altabelli turned most of these visitors away. But he welcomed Melcher, who'd expressed a bizarre yearning to stay in his old place again. With Altabelli's blessing, Melcher lived there for a month, maybe longer. He hardly left the property. He probably figured it was safe there, Altabelli said. That lightning wouldn't strike twice. Melcher came alone. He seemed to have split up with Bergen. Settling back into the house, he became morose, as Altabelli remembered, wandering around in a daze and drinking heavily. Another friend, the screenwriter Charles Eastman, who lived several doors down on Cielo Drive, said that Melcher showed up at his place wearing Wojtek Frakowski's clothing. I said, this is too gruesome. This is ugly. I don't like this. Melcher was living out his attachment to the place in macabre ways. He felt, as everybody did, that the house was sacred, Eastman said. He loved it so much that he'd even tried to talk Altabelli into selling it to him. Which made me wonder, why had he and Bergen ever moved out? Bugliosi hinted in Helter Skelter that their departure was abrupt, but he never said why. They left in the middle of the night with no warning and four months left on the lease, Altabelli told me. Terry blamed it on Ruth Simmons, their housekeeper. He said they were frightened of her, that she was domineering and a drunk, that it was the only way they knew to get rid of her. Melcher and Bergen, both privileged children of Hollywood royalty, were so frightened of a housekeeper that they'd sooner move out of a house they loved than fire her. A power couple scared of the maid. Eastman was convinced that something else was to blame. Melcher knew that Manson was after him. Altabelli and Melcher were always being pestered by strange visitors, girls with funny names, he said. My feeling was that Rudy and Terry both had reason to be uncomfortable about Manson and his people. Eastman had even written about it in his journal in March 1969. He read the entry to me. Rudy criticizes Terry for leaving behind so many cats when he moved. When I asked him why Terry moved, he tells me it was money, that Terry became peeved at the rent. Remembering Terry's love of the house and how many times, according to Rudy, that Terry offered to buy the house from him, it seems odd to me that he moved away so suddenly, so abruptly. None of this had ever come out before. Other friends of Melcher agreed that he and Bergen had snuck out in the middle of the night because of threats from the family. Melcher was afraid of them, one source told me. They said, if you don't produce our album, we'll kill you. After the murders, Melcher seemed really guilty. He probably felt he should have said to the new tenants, Tate and Polanski, don't rent the house. There are these people who have been harassing me there. 
Altabelli gave me the number for Carol Wilson, Dennis Wilson's ex-wife. It was after their second separation that Dennis had taken up with Manson and the girls, much to Carol's chagrin. The two shared custody of their two kids. Later, I would hear from a reliable source that Carol had had photos taken at Dennis's house, capturing him cavorting naked around the pool with women from the family. She used them to pressure Dennis, getting him to agree to her terms in the divorce. Carol kept careful tabs on her ex's goings-on. She kept a diary from the day Dennis first met Tex Watson, Altabelli told me. It has everything in it, everything on Terry. She hates him. Meanwhile, she pursued a romance with Jay Sebring, which I'd never seen reported before. It felt significant in light of the fact that her ex-husband had been intertwined with Sebring's killers. It was just before the weekend when I reached Wilson. I told her that I was exploring the possibility that her former husband and his friends had been more involved with the Manson family than previously reported, and I wondered if Manson's reach in Hollywood was further than had been known. Yes, it sure was, she replied. She asked that I call her back on Monday. We could meet for coffee. When Monday came, though, she'd changed her mind. I thought long and hard over the weekend, she said, and I can't talk to you. There were a lot of people involved, she explained. Too many. It's a scary thing, she said, and anyone who knows anything will never talk. I couldn't draw her out on that. She suggested that I talk to Melcher and Jacobson, but she wouldn't put me in touch. Meanwhile, I'd started to hear more sordid stuff about Melcher's affiliation with the family. Bob April, a retired carpenter who'd been a fringe member of the family, told me with confidence that Manson would supply girls for executive parties that Melcher threw, giving well-heeled business types unfettered access to Manson's girls. But what would Manson get in return? That's why everyone got killed, April said. He didn't get what he wanted. Melcher had promised Manson a record deal on Day Labels, his mother's imprint. But Doris Day took one look at Manson and laughed at him and said, you're out of your mind if you think I'm going to produce a fucking record for you. Said it to Charlie's face. Melcher and Manson knew each other very well, April said. I've tried to get this out for years. The paper trail begins. I was doing shoe leather reporting on a 30-year-old story. The memories I heard were rife with the omissions, contradictions, and embroidery that come with the passage of time. I would interview people and then rush to the library to fact-check, as best I could, what they'd told me. In books about the case, histories of Los Angeles, biographies of organized crime figures, old news clippings, and more. But if I wanted to report this story with veracity, I needed contemporaneous, documentary evidence. The paperwork. When sources like Charles Eastman would mention having journals, I would beg them to find them, often calling back repeatedly until they did. But first and foremost, I wanted police reports and trial transcripts. The case had been the longest and costliest in California history, and Bugliosi said that the transcript numbered more than a million pages. 
Where was that? Could I have access to it? The LAPD told me they'd destroyed all their investigative reports. They'd retained some files, but they weren't about to release them to me. How could they have trashed their records of the most infamous case in the history of the city? I didn't believe it. I asked them to put it in writing, and they did, stating in an official letter that a thorough and proper search produced no records, all the evidence had been destroyed. I turned to unofficial channels. I'd heard about a researcher named Bill Nelson, an older man who was obsessed with the murders. He'd self-published several books about the case and had a lot of original police reports. Nelson was purportedly a pretty strange guy. He'd stalked former members of the family and relatives of the victims, trying to befriend them so he could interview them. He'd become close to Sharon Tate's mother Doris, even traveling with her to Paris to visit Roman Polanski. But they'd had some falling out before her death in 1992. I looked at Nelson's website, mansonmurders.com. The fact that he had one at all was still something of a novelty in 1999. Regularly updated with accounts of his crusades, his page included an index of crime scene photos, police documents, and interviews, most of which were for sale. There was also plenty to suggest his instability. A retired evangelical minister, Nelson boasted of a close and personal relationship with Jesus Christ. He bragged about having attended the United States Secret Service Academy, where his design for the annual class ring was still in use. His exposés of former family members were vitriolic and often ad hominem. He'd published photographs of some of their children, having stalked them at their homes and schools. But I had to admit that he was a thorough researcher, and I was at a loss as to how I could come by these documents otherwise. I swallowed my pride and sent him an email. We met for coffee at a Denny's in Costa Mesa one afternoon. Across the table, Nelson looked like a retired accountant, mid-sixties, balding, his silver hair neatly combed on the sides. He dressed conservatively, in a button-down shirt and khakis. I paid him 40 bucks for copies of the homicide investigation reports, unredacted and numbering almost a hundred pages. He'd gotten these from Earl Deemer, the cop whose interview with Billy Doyle I discussed earlier. Deemer conducted most of the polygraphs for the Tate investigation and had copied all the police reports, photos, and audio tapes related to the case. How Nelson persuaded him to part with this stuff was a mystery. Some said he bought the files, others that he stole them. He didn't want to tell me, that much was clear. Deemer had since died, and what was left of his records went to Mike McGann, a retired homicide detective who'd been the lead investigator on the Tate team. McGann lived in Idaho now. Nelson gave me his number. Like Ed Sanders and others, Nelson believed that certain elements of law enforcement knew that the Tate-LaBianca murders were planned, or they knew who was behind them. They'd been unable to act because it would have exposed their secret intelligence-gathering operations. Nelson had watched nearly every televised interview Manson had ever given. 
He felt that Manson never lies, he just withholds information. But Manson would never tell the truth about the murders. It would involve snitching, and there was no greater transgression in a criminal's mind. Hearing all this at Denny's made my head hurt, but I felt I had to indulge Nelson. In spite of how far-fetched his theories sounded, some of them resonated with me long after I pulled away from the restaurant that day. Back home, I put on some coffee and pulled out the sheaf of papers I'd just bought, feeling somewhere between eager and anxious. As explained in Helter Skelter, the homicide investigation progress reports were essentially internal summaries. They outlined the detectives' various leads and efforts to break the case, presenting the investigation in all its disarray, without Bugliosi's streamlining. The 33 pages on the Tate murders, first homicide investigation progress report, dated to the end of August 1969. Much of them was workmanlike, describing the activities of the victims in the days leading to their deaths, the chronology of the discovery of the bodies, the recovery of evidence, and so on. When the investigators speculated on the hows and whys, I sat up a bit. They focused on the possibility that Billy Doyle, Charles Tucko, and others had initiated a vengeful massacre after Frakowski welched on a drug deal. The second homicide investigation progress report came six weeks later, describing the battery of polygraphs and interrogations through which investigators concluded they hadn't found the killers yet. I'd expected to see names like Altabellis and Melchers everywhere in the two Tate reports. But I was wrong. Melcher wasn't mentioned once, and Altabelli was only referenced in passing. If investigators had looked into the possibility that the man who owned the house, or its most recent previous occupant, had anything to do with the murders, there was no sign of their efforts here. As intriguing as these reports were, they were kind of a letdown. And other reporters had already gotten them. If I wanted something new, really new, I'd have to keep pressing. I decided to call Mike McGann, the retired cop who lived in Idaho. If Nelson was right, he'd have a stockpile of documents that dwarfed the collection in my hands. Everything in Vince Bugliosi's book is wrong, McGann told me on the phone. I was the lead investigator on the case. Bugliosi didn't solve it. Nobody trusted him. McGann spoke in gruff sentences, sometimes no more than a word or two, always a breath away from hanging up on me. I wanted to know more. But McGann, like others close to the case, expected to be compensated for his time, and even more so for his papers. He had the records, he told me, but they were available only for a price. That effectively shut down the conversation. I kept calling McGann, who was willing to tolerate my curiosity, to a point. I wanted to know about Melcher, Wilson, Jacobson, and Altabelli. What had they told the cops, and when? What about Carol Wilson and Carol Jacobson, Greg's wife? McGann said he hadn't gone through the files in years, but he'd look, if he had a chance. Two months later, during our sixth conversation, he still hadn't agreed to show me anything for free. 
McGann said that he had 190 written summaries of the interviews by the Tate detectives. Some were only half a page long. Most were a page or two. A few were longer. There were no interviews of Melcher, Jacobson, Wilson, or Altabelli. But there were interviews with Carol Jacobson and Carol Wilson. He pulled out the latter, dated August 15, 1969, and started to read a portion over the phone. But soon he stopped and raised his voice. Are you taping this? I'm not going to go for that. I turned off the tape, but he refused to read any more. Before he totally lost patience, I asked if he could tell me one last thing. The date of the Carol Jacobson interview. He leafed through the pages. August 10, he said. The day after the bodies were discovered. That meant that both wives, Jacobson's and Wilson's, the two Carols, as Altabelli called them,